If you have any influence on a situation and you're using that influence to prevent or discourage low-cost reliable energy, I think you're contributing to the life catastrophe that is widespread poverty. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's sportsbet.io. The very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it is Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about... Wow, what is it, like four months now? And I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Also today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. 
Alex, hi, how are you? It's great to be here. Uh, you're a very largely requested guest on this show. All right. We've been tackling energy and climate uh, for, well, for the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. We've had it on, we've been covering it. Uh, I used to have another podcast called Defiance and I covered mm -hmm. it there. And um, I would be considered by the people who listen to my show to be somebody who is concerned about the climate. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's an evolving position. Mm -hmm. uh, evolving part because of you. Uh, All right. I'll give you that credit. Um, but what I'm going to say today, I'm not going to debate you because uh, I think you're a seasoned debater. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but I will interview you. I've got a, a, a lot uh, I want to ask you. And just to set the context of the audience for this, I think there's going to be three mm -hmm. groups of people listen to this. There's going to be a group of people who are big fans of you, who think uh, the climate alarmists are totally wrong mm -hmm. and nothing I would ever say will change their mind and they're going to fundamentally agree with everything you say and probably buy your book and uh, and repeat a lot of the things you say in, in their debates. And I think there'll be a second audience of people who are nervous about you, fundamentally disagree with you, mm -hmm. and then anything you say they're going to be disagreeing with. And then in the middle, I think there'll be a group of people who will be will be interested in knowing what we agree on, what we disagree on, mm -hmm. and where we get to. How's that sound? It sounds good. You know, I'm always I'm always trying to see if I can reach the people who expect to disagree with me. So that's what I, I always write to. Okay. Like I always think about what's the like I think about like an honest person in Hollywood. So they have like all the incentive and background to disagree. But like if they're open, can I take them from where they are to where I am? Because you know, I I began in a liberal environment being concerned about climate catastrophe and begin in fossil fuels. So I'm, I'm very interested in like, how can you take someone else through that journey? And I find that if you do that, you then help the people who support you be better. Cause like what, what I never want to do is just give red meat to people who already agree with me because that you see this in politics. Like if you don't give people really good arguments, then, they, then they're repeating bad arguments. So I think the model is to try make arguments that will clarify the issue to somebody who expects to disagree. And then your champions will be better champions instead of just like sloppy followers. And I think an advantage I've had throughout my life is I've always disagreed. I mean, since I was a teenager, when I, you know, I was a kind of a liberal teenager, but sort of after that, when I developed my views, I've always had views that are quite different from everyone. Like I'm really into Ayn Rand, for example, which is a very unusual thing. And so I never had a huge native audience. And that's actually a gift because it teaches you to actually try to persuade people versus like if you're Rush Limbaugh, you have 20 million people who will love you no matter what. Or if you're Paul Kirkman, you have 20 million people. And so they end up making very sloppy arguments. Whereas like I had nobody. So it, it sort of taught me to, to, I think, make good arguments. And I, th I think you can add to that because I have to do the same with Bitcoin. I have to be very careful mm. and ground myself because it's very easy just to be pro-Bitcoin on every single point, not think about the consequences. But we have to ground ourselves in case we're wrong. Mm -hmm. And having sloppy followers who start to follow you, almost cultish-like, right. means they will repeat your arguments, but they themselves aren't open to other critical ideas or evolution of ideas. And my assumption is your ideas evolve over time. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes you maybe have been wrong about something and you're able to see that. And I always think you want your followers to be able to do the same. You want your followers, people who listen to your show or read your books, to be able to challenge you because they themselves can be challenged. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest risks is people who can't be challenged. And the reason I say that, and the reason you're on the show is, uh, 
three years ago, I would have considered you a complete nutter <laughs> and, and said, what, I'm not going to talk to this guy or I fundamentally disagree with him. I'm sure there are things we're going to disagree on, but what I've realized is that uh, you, you create stronger arguments by speaking to a range of people mm-hmm. and you start to realize what you're right about or what you're wrong about. And in preparation for this interview, my position has evolved because of yours. Uh, if, if we would have gone back, like I say, two, three years, I would have been very much of the position uh, climate change is, is happening, it's caused by humans, we need to do something about it fast. And that's that's that would have been the, uh-huh. the basis of my position. And then assuming we have to do something with uh, reducing fossil fuels and moving towards considering more renewables. By preparing for this interview, I now consider the risk of uh, not having enough energy mm-hmm. and of uh, curtailing fossil fuels. And I also now understand more about how energy grids work. I understand about load balancing. I understand about nuclear. So because of doing this interview, I've been forced to consider other things, which has evolved my position. And and that has made me realize that on any subject, uh, we all need more information. Yeah, well, particularly, so there's a lot of interesting things in what you said. I mean, I think we have something in common with, you know, Bitcoin is this interesting phenomenon where it's an extreme view and yet that people who believe in it believe there's a lot of truth to it. And I, I believe there's a lot of truth to it. I've been infatuated with the idea since 2011. I just had no money back then because I started my own company. So I decided to invest my tiny amount of money in my business. But I, I love the fundamentals of Bitcoin. It is extreme and that's good. Like some extreme things end up being true, but often people are attracted to extreme things for unhealthy reasons. They want to be different and superior because if you if you feel like oh the world hasn't treated me properly or I'm not like cool like it's a fast way of being superior to say the world is wrong uh, about everything and so a lot of like controversial extreme people that drives them and then then they don't follow the facts and they don't follow the arguments uh, the other thing I would say is with this issue in particular energy you've got two variables where you're going to have change in the understanding. So one is the state of energy. The state of energy economics, like any economic issue, is going to evolve. So I have views about the cost effectiveness of fossil fuels now and for the next several decades. Things can change in that that I can't anticipate. And with climate, it's a bit different, but I would say the understanding of the issue is sufficiently imprecise where we could have significantly greater understanding in 10 or 20 years. And so it's it's deadly to be locked into one's evaluation of the current facts but at the same time, you can have more timeless views on methodology and framework. And, and sort of what you said about your change is not so much about facts, but I think you're considering more the costs of not using fossil fuels. And so I'd regard that as a methodological improvement. And I think no matter what you conclude about the facts, that methodological improvement will stay with you. Well, it is it is considering the costs of not using fossil fuels. At the same time, I'm trying to balance that with consideration of the implications of increasing carbon in the atmosphere. Right, you're you already doing that one. But but I'm, what I'm trying to do is come to a balanced understanding right. how, how the two play together. And that point in extremes is, is really interesting because there are two or extremes with Bitcoin or the similarities in that it's an extreme idea because we f- both are therefore facing uh, external pressures. One is always going to be uh, government and regulation mm-hmm. and what government thinks about the ideas or the things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the mainstream media. I've traditionally been a fan of journalism, huge fan. One of the things that's happened in doing Bitcoin is I've come to distrust the mainstream <laughs> media because of their 
inability to write anything accurate about Bitcoin is almost universally bad. Mm-hmm. Their understanding of the how Bitcoin uses energy, how it uses it per transaction, who is using Bitcoin, what the benefits are. Mm-hmm. It's so far removed from reality, it makes me think, well, if I can't trust you on this, what can I trust you on? And I don't know if you want to talk about it, but well, that's that's an interesting thing. And um, if I can just plug, so we might mention this, it. the new book, Fossil Future, coming out May twenty fourth. So, um, one of the the things I've thought a lot about is, you know, one of the basic challenges in life is we need expert knowledge, absolutely. But then, how do we make sure we're not one of the at one of the times when quote the experts are wrong? Like historically, what we're told, like you know, 100, 200 years ago, you could be told the experts support slavery, the experts support eugenics. Even in, you know, Germany, the most intellectually prestigious country in the world, is where you had the rise of Nazism. You know, with a plurality vote getting them in. But it's like you also need expertise, and so I've thought a lot about like how do I get expert knowledge, but actually reliably and and. What I find really helpful is a concept I call the knowledge system, which is to recognize that there's a process and a system by which experts reach us. So you have researchers who are like the people, so take climate science. They're the actual people studying the issue in depth. But we don't communicate directly with them most of the time because what that's a vast amount of knowledge that needs to be synthesized. And then that needs to be disseminated to us by like the New York Times or the Washington Post. And then we need to evaluate that. So there are these four stages of research, synthesis, dissemination, evaluation. And what we need to realize is that even if the researchers are totally right, which that's often not the case, but even if they're totally right, we can get a dissemination or an evaluation that's totally wrong. And what you're describing, uh, Michael Crichton actually used this term called the the Gell-Mann effect, because there's a physicist called Murray Gell-Mann who observed that hey, you know, when when he used the example of like the media is talking about Palestine, I assume they know what they're doing. But when they talk about physics, they don't know anything, right? They're totally wrong. And so what happens almost to a person when you get some mastery of a field, you just see the journalists are totally wrong, but you still sort of think, oh yeah, well, they're probably right about everything else. But then if you master two fields, it's like, oh, they don't know anything about that either. So I happen to know a lot about energy, fair, quite a bit about climate, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, objectivism slash Ayn Rand. And so I've seen in all of those, people don't know anything about what they're talking about. It doesn't mean that experts are bad, but it means that the system is often broken. And you have to be very wary of the people who are charged with telling you what experts think. So are you an expert? Yes. Well, on some things. <laughs> Not on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But, well, but it's an interesting thing you say. I, I, I was uh, had a conversation with a friend here on the podcast the other day, and I said... You know, in relation to, for example, what's happening in Ukraine mm-hmm. and Russia, um, we have a war where people are taking different opinions and analyzing it. Mm-hmm. And there is this muddying between facts, interpretations, and opinions. Mm-hmm. The complete muddying of this situation. And that seems to be happening across the board with any subject. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to move myself more to a place of facts or understanding what are closest we can get to objective facts. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to consider how different people interpret facts and how their opinions are formed. Because two different people can take a set of objective facts, but based on their own bias or their own interpretation can come to different conclusions. Or different values. Or different values. And and that's super risky. And I watched the debate you had, you said, I forget the guy's name. Andrew Dessler, he's a Uh, climate scientist. He was a guy on Rogan, yeah. 
Yeah, he was on Rogan as well. We'll put that in the show notes. The, the interesting thing about that is when I was watching it, it's like a game. It's like it's a debate. Mm-hmm. It's like a game. And two people are trying. I actually think the format sometimes is broken. I think it's useful. But ultimately, in some ways, it's for, it's broken because it's like a, like a game where you're both trying to defend your position mm-hmm. and defend your arguments. And what actually happens in a situation like that is there's a possibility that you make mistakes, either party, mm-hmm. you interpret things wrong, and you leave the audience with a with with wrong ideas, either side. And and then I I was looking at it and watching it, trying to think what would be a better scenario. How about a scenario where the two of you are just in a room together on your own, mm-hmm. without an audience, working through all the points you discussed with the researchers helping you try and understand? And how about if you two produced a paper together? Where would would that be? Would that serve the world better? Would you come to some conclusions, or would you still disagree? Um, and I think that's a, lot, a big problem with a lot of these situations is that two people from different uh, positions are trying to are trying to prove their thesis rather than working together. Kind of the problem with politics has become so partisan that people are just kind of fighting a corner. And that's what I'm trying to do with this. I'm mm-hmm. trying to get to a point. It's like I think there's going to be a lot we disagree on today, but I think at the end of it, I hope the audience, as many of them as possible, go away with better better formed ideas and better ways to research and understand the range of things we discuss. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the debate thing, I think, you know, I think a key goal is you want people to have access to the most thoughtful version of different competing opinions. So it's unusual that if you have two people who are sort of professional activists as part of, and that's true of both me and Andrew, like we have our our lives are devoted to certain political views, ultimately political positions. Now, it doesn't mean we're locked in them, but just in general, when people are activists in a certain way, it's hard to break them of that. It's hard to change that. I've seen it happen. I've influenced some people changing. And I I would like to think I would change myself if somebody like Andrew proved me wrong in a fundamental way. But usually I think the goal would be there is if he's considered the best exponent of the climate catastrophe, rapid elimination of fossil fuels view, is to come up with a format where you get the full argument as much as possible. And so a one-hour debate is not the best, but it is good because almost nobody will actually engage me at all. So I'll take what I can get. I mentioned that I I was really glad that you have some disagreements and that we could talk about it because that's the hardest thing for me to find. Because I, I'm my, not going to debate you. Though. No, 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 no. I'm not even saying debate. I'm just saying expressing disagreements and challenging because it's really the challenge. Like I think my view is is really right in a fundamental way. I want that to be challenged as much as possible because that benefits the truth. Um, and debate is one way of, we, we have a very imperfect way, but so for me, that's a mediocre way that's better than nothing, but not ideal. I know why people won't debate you because I, I have friends and contacts who are climate scientists and mm-hmm. I, I asked and there's a general consensus now about climate scientists mm-hmm. that debating the likes of yourself or a Schellenberger or a Kooning is a, is a waste of time and it gives validity to ideas which are fundamentally wrong, mm-hmm. and they've got much better things to spend their time on. That's why they won't debate people like you. And but bear with me, and I understand that, that there there is a part of me in prepping for this or considering this was: do I risk platforming bad ideas because mm-hmm. you could be wrong? You, you don't think you are, but other people do. And and navigating that for myself is really mm-hmm. hard. Do I platform bad ideas? I. 
I came to the conclusion that even the debate you did the other day, there were things you agreed upon. So that there is room for discussion here, but I know that's why they won't debate you. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that because I, I think you've you've praised certain people. So I'm guessing these are some of your contacts. I know you've praised publicly uh, Michael Mann uh, and Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, I'm a big and, fan and, of Catherine Hayhoe. I've, I've interviewed her. Michael Mann. I, I've only mentioned him in that he uh, he um, he discredited his own work on cooling. Um, I'm not sure about his work on cooling. There's a guy named Schneider who who did that, but. Um, so the issue is, I think Dessler actually articulated this fairly well on Rogan, which is he he acknowledged, and I think this is why he debated me, there's large room for debate on policy. Yeah. And so fossil future in my work is primarily about, it's primarily trying to guide policy. How do we think about what to do about fossil fuels? And anyone needs to acknowledge fossil fuels produce 80% of the world's energy. We have a world that is drastically deprived of energy. Most people are very poor, including short of energy. And fossil fuels also have this side effect of greenhouse gas emissions that have a warming impact. And so you have this phenomenon where the energy that most of the world depends on and the kind of the low cost reliable energy, at least the caliber of energy that many more people need has this side effect. So you've got something with a benefit and a side effect. And so you need debate over the relative benefits and side effects. And so this is where I would say Andrew Dessler deserves credit because he's saying Yes. Now, he's trying to get into the energy side. I don't think he really knows anything about that, but he's at least acknowledging this. Uh, I would regard Michael Mann and Hayhoe as as cowards because of how they've acted on this issue toward me in particular. So, I mean, Mann is, has, I mean, he publicly attacked me as a puppet of the Koch brothers, which was false. He never substantiated. I asked him, and then he, this is all documented on Twitter, and then he just blocked me. Um, Hayhoe has called me a liar. So it's a disingenuous thing to say, the issue is not debatable. You can say, I think the science, I don't want to debate somebody outside the field on the science. I think that is a legitimate position. But to say that the policy is not debatable, that is disingenuous because you're taking your expertise on one piece of the puzzle and you're trying to silence debate on how the puzzle fits together. And my expertise is primarily methodological. I'm a philosopher first and foremost, is how do we put together all of these, these pieces? So that's that's and there is I, ample debate on that. I, I I I agree. I agree. There's debate on the policy because policy will drive this. Yeah. And the energy sector is already dictated by policy. So yeah. I agree. There's these are, we, we face these huge decisions. So for anybody to say there's no debate, I consider because you don't think there's a debate on an aspect of the question that's disingenuous. I think just perhaps they don't want to debate you. Um, look, I'm a huge fan of Catherine Hayhoe and. I would happily have her on the other side. I'd happily have her alongside you if she wanted to. I I I understand getting to know her, uh, what her focus is on, and her choice not to do it, to do it. But yeah. but that's her choice. I mean, look, that that's fine. She doesn't feel the need to debate. I'm just saying, if you deny, leaving aside me, I mean, personal accusations and not substantiating what both of them have done. That's that's I think unacceptable. But I agree, not debating me is fine. But but challenging the need for debate on the policy that is totally wrong. So that's where I disagree with them. And I think, well, we people can guess about the motives, but I just want to make that intellectual point that we absolutely need to debate the policy. What do you think the and motives are? That's what are? I'm here to do. I don't want to talk too much about the motives because I don't like talking about motives until people agree on the on the question that's leading to the question of motives. Like if, if people don't know the whole thing of me and Michael Mann and Catherine Hayhoe, like I want to make the point about we need this debate, they're wrong about that. That that itself is a big point to convince people of. 
in in general, here, here's here's a narrative that I have, and this relates to not that we'll get into it, but this thing where the Washington Post has been trying to cancel me, and as of this recording, uh, has the is the article out? No, they still have there. It's been delayed by indefinitely. See, this is an interesting thing. I think you can fundamentally disagree with you, and at the same time fundamentally disagree with what the Washington Post oh, is doing. Oh, oh, it of is, course. It's I think, a very weak attack. I, I, yeah, I think it's a, just the very quick version, because this is hopefully going to be outdated by the time. But but basically just the Washington Post was sent a copy of Fossil Future, and their climate reporter was sent it, which we sent it to a lot of people. And then the response was not to respond to that, but to come up with a story uh, claiming that I'm racist based on... Ed- crazy misinterpretation of things I wrote as an 18 and 19-year-old at Duke University. And again, there was nothing racist there, but they took things that were controversial and then totally mangled them to be racist. And they were going to go with this. And, you know, to be accused of racism is a life-destroying thing. And I knew this was coming out, and so I didn't wait for it to come out. I, I made a story about these guys are trying to cancel me on these totally false grounds instead of engaging uh, with my views. So, and I think that was wrong. And I think most people will agree that's wrong, even if they think I'm wrong. But I think you can see the motive there. You mentioned your own changes on this issue. Like the view of fossil fuel elimination as a policy has has been given a free ride for a long time. And the reason it's been given a free ride is we've had this conflation of you believe we impact climate and you believe in fossil fuel elimination. And I think those two, one does not follow from the other. You agree with the first point. Yeah, I definitely agree with we impact climate. And I definitely think fossil fuel elimination is a mass murder policy. So we'll get into the details of that. I, I don't I don't think a point like that can ever be made without nuance because I, I th- that that that's one of my me and Danny were talking beforehand. One one of my criticisms of your debates is the use of very extreme language mm-hmm. because equally Catherine Hayhoe could could claim that and and make a claim that uh, burning fossil fuels and destroying the environment is a mass murder policy. Well, she should if if she thinks it's right and she can justify it. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think she can come remotely close to that. But just just to to finish the thread of you've got this issue of fossil fuels have a side effect of warming the climate. You can believe that, and you can still think fossil fuels are good because you think you can think among other things. Fossil fuels have huge benefits. So you can think the polio vaccine had significant side effects. You can also think it had amazing benefits. And so overall, it's good. But what's happened is this fossil fuel eliminate, believing in climate impact equals fossil fuel elimination. In the last 10 years, there are a bunch of us who've challenged that. And we've said, no, you have to look at our climate impact in its full context, including the benefits of fossil fuels. And I call us the energy humanists. So that I would include me. Schellenberger now, he's sort of converted in the past few years. I don't think his arguments are as good as yours. I don't. Okay, well, uh, th- I'm interested to hear that. I, I, I'm not saying... We don't... That, he, let that, him answer his on his own Yeah, time. yeah, I'm not saying... But, so, I, you know, I, I stand by my arguments. I'm not endorsing the arguments. I'm just saying this is a trend where there's Kunin, there's Lomborg. And again, they have different arguments for me, but there's a challenge to this narrative that if you believe in climate impact, then you're for eliminating fossil fuels. And so the establishment has not reacted to this really by engaging us. There's been a lot of smearing of us. And so my my view, you asked about the motive, I think the establishment has been getting a free ride, but having a bad methodology of only looking at the negative side effects of fossil fuels and not looking at the benefits. And then here's a bunch of us saying, no, you need to look at the full context. 
And I don't think they're reacting very admirably. Climate scientists have also been smeared. Accusations made about their funding, their intentions. So I, 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 as somebody who tries to walk a fine middle line, mm-hmm. I see both sides. But not, not I, by me. They haven't been smeared by me. Maybe not. I would have to go back and see everything you've read and say, oh, actually, Alex, I think this here, you're smearing okay, someone. So I don't have that. But what I'm saying is they do get smeared as well. This this does happen. But, both but they're, they're, I mean, okay, but at the same time, they are deified as heroes in the culture. I mean, there's no don't look up movie about the people challenging, like there's no don't look up movie about the energy humanists like me, right? The don't look up movie is saying there are these amazing heroes. They're telling us the world is ending. Nobody's listening. Like there's no Academy Award of course, but for energy humanism. There is for Al Gore, even though it's a wild distortion. But we're, we're in, the world is a battle of ideas and- their ideas perhaps are winning larger than your ideas right now. But I'm saying what's happening is they're starting to lose and they are very, very upset about that. And their reaction has been ignoring our ideas or smearing us. And that's what I've been okay. documenting. I, d- I don't think their ideas are starting to lose. What I, I'm saying is that I think the debate's evolving and I think there are better arguments coming from people like yourself mm-hmm. uh, that make this uh, a discussion worth having. Okay. Um, whereas, yeah. I mean, I interviewed. Do you know Nathaniel Rich? He wrote. I don't. He wrote a book um, called "The Decade We Could Have Saved the Planet" or something or other, and it was a whole research piece into when uh, the Exxon scientists and you'll know all this in the seventies mm-hmm. agreed that putting climate, uh, carbon in the atmosphere would heat the planet, and then the lobbyists followed the big tobacco. Was this a New York, there's a huge New York Times piece years ago. It might be based on that. That was like a book. That was as long as a book, so it could have been that. Well, he. I mean, he's a gr- he's a great writer, mm-hmm. and uh, how the Big energy companies followed the big tobacco playbook. Um, I think some of that lobbying is undeniable, and I think that's perhaps maybe why some of the climate scientists became concerned about anybody who maybe had what are similar arguments. At the same time, I am sat here with you because I think you do have things that are worth discussing. I think there's a lot of context. Let me. I want to agree with you on some of that, in particular that people might not expect. I do agree there has been some. So just as I think that often people on the climate catastrophe side ignore the benefits of fossil fuels, there has been, by some advocates of fossil fuels, way too quick dismissal of any negatives on climate. And one of the ways this manifests is just sort of sloppily picking up things that are not actually facts. Mm -hmm. So you'll just hear all these things like, oh, volcanoes have more of an impact than humans, or like, we only are a small percentage. It's like, if you look at this, okay, we started burning fossil fuels, and the CO2 is basically flat, and then it goes up. And it's yeah. like, it's pretty obvious it was us. So when it, whenever you see, whenever people are like voicing scientific things without examining them, like you see this a lot on, on all sides, but on my side, I'm really sensitive to it because it really discredits the view. And if you look at, at my book and my work, like my work is saying we should be using more fossil fuels across a variety of scenarios. Like even if there is significant warming in the next 50 years, we should be using fossil fuels and we should be liberating nuclear if you want to get off fossil fuels. But it's it's very damaging, I think, when people just ignore any potential negative side effects. And often you'll hear one version, a religious version, is to say God would never let it, God wouldn't have given us fossil fuels if they were to have these side effects. I've never heard that argument. Oh, that's a it's an argument that is I've heard it many times. Um, it's people don't usually make it publicly, but like obviously that's not a scientific argument. I just I, I don't even think it's a basis for anything for us to talk about. No, no, there's nothing to talk about. I'm just saying that that it is you. 
there are always rigor challenges whenever people get entrenched. So I, I do my best and I have an amazing researcher and like part of his job is to always challenge me and always point out like the merit on the other side. And one of the things I think there is sometimes is a an economic disconnect between people whose policies of view seem to come from the left and the cost. Um, I My expectation, correct me if I'm wrong, but your ideas have probably been accepted a little bit more from the right than the left. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> and and as a Bitcoiner, I empathize with that. You know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin has been traditionally more accepted by people from the right from mm -hmm. the left. And and the reason I think this is, is I think uh, the right are traditionally, be traditionally better at, at economic reality. Mm -hmm. Whereas from the left, uh, there seems to be more of a, there seems to be, I think the left seems to be better at uh, empathy and, and uh, more kind of progressive ideas. And that's fine. Jonathan Haidt documented all of that in The Righteous Mind. We can understand why that, that is. Um, but I, but I empathize with that. I, I tend to find the people I, I speak to who are concerned about the climate, there is a, a, a left bent to this, and therefore there's an economic disconnect. And when you want to discuss policy, that is a connection to the economic reality of this situation. I don't know, because, you know, I think a lot about I mean, I think of all of these things in terms of what I would call human flourishing. So like human life, our ability to really live to our highest potential. So if you, I think But isn't about, that an economic connection? In it, but economics is just a perspective on that. So economics is capturing the element of production and trade, including, of course, the element of money, which you're super focused on. But I think, I don't think of like economics and environment. I think they're just different perspectives on the same thing, which is our lives and the world that we live in. So But you've you've talked about you've talked about that a lot of the work with regards to modeling mm -hmm. and climate scientists misses that economic angle. Yeah, definitely, but 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 it's like I'm agreeing but, with but you. The, yeah. No, I understand that, but I I'm not interested in like agreeing or disagreeing, just clarifying the view because I mean, when let's say you're modeling what happens with fossil fuels, the the goal is to model like what are the good things and what are the bad things? And part of it is economically, you know, there's environmental economics. When you're talking about economics, you need to look at the negative side effects. So if you're just looking at what's the cost of energy, but you don't look at the impacts of warming, that would be bad. So I, I just think you need to look at these holistically. And in terms of the human connection, economic issues are issues of human life. So for example, one of my most powerful arguments has been just that billions of people lack low cost, reliable energy. I often use the statistic, which I, I first heard from Robert Bryce, who's a good energy writer, which is 3 billion people use less electricity than one of our refrigerators. And that really connects with people, which actually is, is one of the reasons the Washington Post went after me as racist, because their argument explicitly and what they sent me was, this is going to show that you don't really care about poor people in Africa because you're actually a racist. That so it shows the opposite, though. No, 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 but they, they're saying I know. They're, my alleged racism discredits this argument. They're like, that's not a real argument. You don't care about it. We should, we should forget the Washington okay. Post. The, the, okay. the good thing the Washington Post could have done is engage mm -hmm. in your arguments. Yes. And I would have read it. Yes. I, I have no interest in, I, even with your videos, I just switched off. I was like, this is just more bullshit. No, um, I agree. But I just want to make the energy poverty point is a very, it's an economic point, but it is a very resonant point, which I think the left will become interested in soon. And I hope that they do because it's, if you care about like oppressed people and disenfranchised people, like there are billions of people who do not, who cannot use machines in a significant way in their lives. I mean, if they can't anyway, 
why does this policy matter? Because they don't have access. What do you mean they don't have access? <laughs> well, so we're, t- we're talking about wanting, there's people who want to cur- curtail fossil fuel use. Yeah. And this, uh, this discriminates against the poorest people in the world who need mm-hmm. it. But if they need it, why don't they already have it? That's a really interesting uh, question, which is one of, almost nobody ever asks. So I was like, I, I, I love that you asked it. It's, it comes up in chapter 10. So but what we've seen, we know that it's possible to go very rapidly from not having it to having it because we've seen China and India over the last 40 years. You know, so we've gone from a rate of, from a percentage of people on $2 a day used to be 40% when I was born in 1980. You know, now you're at about 10%. So it's it's gone down by a factor of four. It's unbelievable. And so what we know is that you can have development and use a lot more fossil fuels and benefit enormously. But what you need is you need political freedom. You need, you need at least some sort of political freedom and particular trade. So what's really missing in much of Africa, certain parts of Asia, is you don't have the political infrastructure, so nobody will invest. Right. But, but if people can invest in manufacturing, then you've got it made because, because you'll have this huge labor pool that people will invest in and they'll give them power to power the machines and then that'll build up the infrastructure and they'll become wealthy just like China is starting to and just like India is starting to. But before we get into this, just as a starting point and a a question, because one of the things we were trying to find out was how much fossil fuels do we have left? And consistently found the statistic was like 53 years of oil, 50-odd years of gas, and 115 (laughs) years of coal. Do we actually know how much we have left? Well, we know we have a lot more than that, but okay. it, but it's so. But it's, know, some of it's hard to get. Yeah. So there's always so the the term that is always confusing to people is reserves. So to simplify it, you can think of reserves and deposits. Mm-hmm. So reserves is what, given current knowledge, you expect to be able to produce, and deposits is what's actually in the earth. And what you find is reserves don't go down over time. They go up over time because deposits are like 10 plus times what reserves are. But at a given time, we just don't, we have no idea of what's really possible. A, because we're not motivated to. Like, you don't need to figure out where you're going to get your oil in 75 years. There's no reason to invest in that knowledge, that exploration. But also the technology changes. So there's, what we know is that there's 10 times more oil, gas, and coal in the ground than have existed in the entire history of civilization. And they're getting better. And in particular, uh, coal, like coal is the easiest one. So if you could convert coal to the others, which some people are claiming to be able to do really efficiently now, then you have it effectively forever. And and my view is nuclear- Not effectively forever. Effectively forever from our perspective, like hundreds of years. From our perspective, but but, uh, human civilization is 10,000 years. Well, but- There will be future generations. but But here's the thing, like- we know that if you look at like why are fossil fuels special, one of the main reasons is physically they have three attributes. So they're naturally stored, they're naturally concentrated, they're naturally abundant. Well, we already know of something, only one thing that has those three attributes, but even better, which is nuclear. It's yeah. naturally stored, it's much more concentrated and considerably more abundant. So we're pretty clear on what the next logical thing is. Not to say it couldn't be anything else, but we have this next logical thing. We know it worked really well in the 70s. We know, most people don't know, but it's a fact, it got criminalized, so the price went up by almost a factor of 10. We know that it can do a lot of mobility applications, already powers, you know, really big ships, aircraft carriers, that kind of thing. So kind of the next thing, it's not like we have no idea what could replace fossil fuels on some time scale. We have a good idea it's nuclear. So that's why I say effectively forever, because we're going to, 
at one point we're going to get out of our way and we're going to develop nuclear. Yeah, no, nuclear is one area we won't disagree with. I, I, what, what I was really getting at is on a long enough time scale, we eventually have no fossil fuels there. Well, on a long enough time scale, we have nothing. But yeah, but I'm saying... But no, it, no, no, but that, that, sorry, that's, that's, not, that's not a valid argument. When I say a long enough time scale, I'm saying uh, civilization has existed for, what, 10,000 years of you know, advanced civilization mm -hmm. as we are. Um, in 10,000 years, we may have run out of fossil fuels. Yes, in infinity, we might run out of everything. But, 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 but there's, no, there's no viability of even using them in 10,000. You wouldn't even need them. But also like... No, but what the, uh, sorry, you're missing the point I'm trying to get to. Okay. Uh, so in Africa, they skipped the wired internet. They went straight from... Um, they went straight to mobile. Uh, is there a scenario whereby in parts of Africa, they could essentially skip the fossil fuel stage and move to that kind of nuclear and renewable mix? I mean, in a different world, so nuclear has been so stunted. So again, nuclear, like the price in the U.S. has gone up by about a factor of 10 since the 60s. Nuclear is declining. And so nuclear is a whole tragedy. Like it's this unbelievable potential, but it's a trivial source of energy around the world. It's like five, six percent of the, the world's energy and the world's energy needs are growing and nuclear. It's we're starting to get some sympathy. So it's Elon Musk has helped. No, he's hurt. Has he? A nuclear. Thought, I thought he came out recently and said, I'll go and sit outside any nuclear reactor and eat a sandwich. Yeah, but he's also been, been boosting solar above nuclear. Yeah, he's been overall really bad on nuclear. So yeah, recently he also said, let's expand oil and gas production after opposing it publicly for so a decade. So he, he basically supports everything. <laughs> well, He's not no clear position. Yeah, but he supports he supports subsidies and mandates for solar, which that hurts fossil fuels, but it above all hurts nuclear for various... Okay. For various reasons, but... Uh, we, we, do you know what? We're jumping around. I did have a structure. Okay. I wanted to work out what we agree on, but I think we've covered that. I, I had it here is that okay. uh, energy is important. Um, curtailing energy use comes with significant risk. Uh -huh. um, so energy is important to civilization, but we agree climate change is real. That was like my basis of the, I think we agree on that. Okay, but there's a lot of detail to each of those, which there may be disagreements on. Well, of, of, of course, but that's that's where we get into the key, the okay, key points. Okay, let's do it. Um, so really, I wanted to start with uh, an important question to you. It's like, what is on the line here? You know, what is on the line? We have essentially two kind of potential scenarios. Mm -hmm. We have a scenario whereby you are entirely right. Um, we can continue to burn fossil fuels. Uh, yes, temperatures will rise, but as humans, we will continue to flourish and we will adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a side where the climate scientists are right, and if we do that, there's catastrophic consequences that perhaps we, you know, we will get into. There's also the side whereby uh, I, I don't agree with that attribution to climate scientists. That's a view, but I would not describe it as the climate scientists. Who would you describe it as? I would describe that as the um, what I would call the knowledge systems view or the the designated experts view. But I wouldn't regard that. And the two reasons are one is. What we hear climate scientists think is a very skewed version of what they think. Okay. But also climate scientists are in no position to state something as a catastrophe. They can only state the climate aspect. That's fair. Okay. No, that's okay. fair. Um, there is a side whereby the, the knowledge, what do you call it? Knowledge system. The knowledge system says there's potential cat catastrophe from climate change, and there's also a potential catastrophe from uh curtailing fossil fuels and not having enough energy production, mm -hmm. you consider it mass murder. Yeah, and I, well, I also think there's a current catastrophe from curtailing it already, but it could get far, far worse. What, like what's happened in Germany? Well, no, see, so this is the thing. Like, I think the thing we always miss 
is that we're very, most of the people I'm talking to, including us, like we're very rich and most people are very poor. Yeah. So 5 billion people live on less than $10 a day. I mentioned 3 billion people using less electricity than a refrigerator. So in my view, life is catastrophically bad for most of the world right now. So anything that has been done to preserve that state of affairs, I regard as catastrophic. And the green movement has for the last 40 plus years been suppressing the use of fossil fuels and nuclear to the point where you could make the case that billions more people would have a wealthy modern life were it not for the environmental movement. So that's an unseen destruction, right? Wait, give me an example. Of which one? Of where the expansion of use of fossil fuels or nuclear has been curtailed for disastrous effects. Well, if you just, so if you just take the, well, I mean, it's been curtailed all over the place. So if you just take like the action of international organizations toward Africa, for example, so that has explicitly in the last 40 years become generally anti-development. So it's it's partially just anti-impacting the earth and then anti-fossil fuels and nuclear in particular. So you could imagine that without that movement, you would have more of a pro-freedom, pro-business, pro-industry movement and Africa would have significantly industrialized instead of being incentivized to not build dams, not use coal, not use gas. And actually, currently, we pay off dictators not to do these things. So, I, yeah, I regard that as that is suppressing the livelihood of people, you know, on that continent. But did you not say, okay, because you referred to not having the political infrastructure to be yes. able to allow that kind of right. investment. But, but, but we, in part, the way we deal with those nations, has, so there's other things connected, including we don't promote freedom anymore. So the way we deal with nations is often we pay off dictators, including to do these environmental things, instead of advocating uh, freedom around the world. So I don't think we've done much at all, and, and we've done a lot bad, in terms of advocating better governments. But promoting freedom around the world has also been kind of catastrophic for the US. Well, but it, it, but if you think that you need to impose it, that's one thing. But if you think that you want to spread this as an idea, that's another thing. I mean, like, for example, the idea that all cultures are of equal value, that is an idea that has a regressive impact on the places that haven't developed, because it basically says your primitive governments and your primitive way of life, those are good enough for you. Often it's racist in a racist way equated with having a skin color, which is absurd. And so we encourage these places to stay backward and to not reform. But, but where, where are we, where and how, you say we, mm-hmm. um, where and how are we encouraging these countries not to advance? Where, where is this happening? Like you say Africa, but that's quite broad. That's a whole continent. Right. But we have, so yeah, so there, there's there's a number of things that are all interesting that are coming together, but there's sort of what are we doing in terms of broad government policy? What are we doing toward development in general? And then what are we doing toward energy in particular? And I would say all of these are very, very bad in different ways. So I'd say the United Nations in general is not is an anti-freedom organization. It does nothing to promote freedom, and it does a lot to preserve places in a state of anti-freedom. And we could go into yeah, because I, 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 I know a lot about the work the UN have done. So I'd, I'd love to know that because I, I've seen the work that uh, the UN has done with regards to uh, female health. Uh-huh. I've, I've seen the work they've done with regards to war zones and and, uh-huh. and creating drop schools. I've seen the projects they've done with regards to supporting the availability of water. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm aware of a lot of the work that. But, but, the are... US, but like, when you say they've done anti, there's actual anti. Like, uh, uh, right. So the whole right. So the whole I would regard it, this whole sustainable development thing is I regard as anti-freedom, anti-development, and anti-energy. 
So, I mean, there's a whole history here, some of which is in fossil future. My, Michael Schellenberger has it in Apocalypse Never. But there's a dramatic shift, for example, in, in lending and incentives and policy toward significant industrialization projects like that and saying, no, we don't want to do those. And yeah, we want you to use more solar and wind and that kind of thing. So there's been more opposition to dams, certainly more opposition to fossil fuels, aversion to nuclear in favor of these renewables. The idea you mentioned before about why can't we do like cell phones and what's called leapfrogging, that's part of the sustainable development movement. That the fundamental thing going on is sustainable development, there is a contradiction in terms based on what sustainable means to that movement. Because sustainable means really minimize your impact on the earth. But development means significantly impacting the earth. So what they're saying is you poor nations, you need to develop in a way that meets this ideal of sustainable development. Now, if we had been forced to do that ourselves in the US and Europe, we wouldn't have developed at all. So my view is sustainable development means no development. The UN promoting that is promoting backwardness and stagnation. The countries that have advanced the most are those who have steadfastly refused to participate in sustainable development, namely China and India. Where is an example of this in Africa? I just, I don't know of any of this, like educate me. Okay, so it's, I mean, it's, it's in this book. So you take like, um, like building dams in the Congo and that being opposed by the sustainable development movement. But, but who, it, who would pay for that dam? Well, it depends. I mean, you could have international lenders. So in some cases, it's saying we will not, they're changing the lending practices, saying we refuse to lend this. But, but are you not familiar with just this international movement to restrict fossil fuel projects, like no, including the ESG No, I'm, I'm movement? very aware of the ESG movement. Uh-huh. Okay, as climate pledges pile up... What? It's this highlighted bit. Okay, okay. Sorry, Danny, it's for anyone listening. Danny, Danny's just brought something up. Fears of fossil fuel boom in low-income but fast-growing regions such as Africa are cited as the rationale for imposing new bans on financing such investment. At this year's UN Climate Change Conference, or COP26, United States, Britain, and other countries pledged to end international finances of fossil fuel projects. The key word here is international. While borrowing public finance for oil and gas projects in other countries, Britain continues to subsidize its own fossil fuel, while the United States, already the world's biggest oil producer, plans to increase its domestic production. But even if we ignore Western hypocrisy and take the promises of rapid carbon reduction at face value, is there any reason to worry about African nations blowing up the carbon budget? So just no, no. I don't know much about the source, Energy for, energy for Growth.org, but... I mean, I would have thought it would be... If it's called energy for growth, can you scroll up? Can we just have a look at the source? But I mean, I'm going to take that at face value. But, but this is, yeah, so, yeah. so I, I just, to, to sort of go to the point that I think is important, I just, the point I was really stressing is that for most people, when we talk about catastrophe, yeah. today is catastrophe. So that anything that is being done and has been done to prevent those people from living a modern life, I regard as catastrophe. And I think that's almost never in the thinking. It's usually from a rich person's perspective, yeah, we could keep using this and it could be good or it could be bad. But I'm like saying, no, right now the world is, so people think of a climate emergency. I think of a life emergency right now for every poor person in the world. So that's that's the perspective I'm bringing. And right, I think that's fair. Okay, but that's all I wanted to make. That's also, there's hypocrisy in there. That's, that's kind of uh, Western development nation bullying. Yeah, for sure. When you say, yeah, let's let's stop uh, no coal in Africa, but we're going to use coal in Europe to bail ourselves out when our wind turbines don't work very well when there's not much wind. It's kind of coercive it, it also because it's not – they're just saying we won't finance your projects. That's yeah. what they're saying. You can't have access to our capital for that. 
Yeah, well, so there are different different versions of that, but it's sometimes it's the government's pressuring the banks to do it, which yeah. we do in the U.S. and you do around the world. And there's the whole mm. issue of this whole system of foreign aid, which is sort of a sideline. But the point is, if you have any influence on a situation and you're using that influence to prevent or discourage low-cost, reliable energy, I think you're contributing to the life catastrophe that is widespread poverty. Hmm. That's interesting. Need to dig a bit deeper on that one. Okay, so... Back to what's on the line here. <laughs> okay, so that's on the line, though. Not yeah, not yeah, alleviating is. the life emergency for billions of poor people as quickly as possible. And every day is ticking by. Yeah. Right? I'm with you. Okay. I'm with you on that. Um, but what, what's on the line here is that, mm -hmm. but also the other side, what's on the line is what is the impact on the environment? Yeah, so I'd love to talk about that part. Yeah. So how much time do you spend thinking about the impact on the environment? How much of that is... It's part of your research. Well, so I'll try to make this quick, but I don't think in those terms. Okay. So like the environment implies it's like something separate from us, often above us. Like I don't think of the environment, the climate. I think of it as our environment, okay. our climate. And so I think of like, and the reason this is important is I think of, for example, like if you, you know, if you like producing food, which is often considered economic and like polluting a lake, I think of those as all our environment. And one of the That's focuses fine. in Fossil Future is it's about, you know, one of the chapters is titled Our Unnaturally Livable Fossil-Fueled World. And that's about how the modern world is an amazing human environment. But part of my point is you look at everything in economics and environmental issues and you integrate them together. So how this applies to climate is I think not a, I think of climate livability, what affects the livability of the climate, including our safety from climate. And so something like more frequent heat waves would have all things be equal an adverse effect, but the increased ability to use air conditioning would have a positive effect. And so fossil fuels are unique in that they have benefits that can neutralize and overwhelm their side effects. Like you take a polio vaccine, the early polio vaccines, it has benefits that outweigh its side effects, but the benefits can't stop the side effects. Like if you get you know, a rash or something like that, something bad, you still get it, but you get this benefit. But with fossil fuels, if you make it warmer, you can also make it even cooler in practice via air conditioning. Or if you cause more drought, you can have drought relief through irrigation, through drought relief convoy. So when I look at the live, that's why I say, when you say, do you think about the environment? I think about it's over it, all impact on our world. Every aspect I try to do equally. So the climate system, yep. but also our ability to deal with the climate system. I think of those in an integrated way. So I think of both all the time. But then net calculations. So for example, you yeah. talk about increase in heat waves, but an increased ability to produce um, air conditioning units. Right. But an increase in heat waves would lead to potentially more deaths. Um what, and the mitigation is the availability of air conditioning units. But you could have less. But so what we actually have isn't, you know, in the wealthier parts, we have fewer deaths because the air conditioning is more sick. So why do so few people die of heat in like Florida, Miami, you know, where we are in Texas? Why do people move here? Because our ability to master the heat is so much greater than any change but, in the heat. But but you still have deaths attributed to that. Well, but they're declining. So the, the, there's always, uh, nature I mean. is always killing us in the first place. You're missing my point. It's a net calculation, but it will impact the most vulnerable, those with the highest health risks or age or poverty. If if there is uh, a net change, there is still going to be some people who are affected by that 
who maybe can't get access to an air conditioning unit. Maybe I wouldn't put those together though, because you could, so we could talk about the poverty aspect, but if you talk about older people, vulnerable people, if we are net safer from temperature danger, those people will benefit the most. It's their lives who are being saved in the statistics. If we are net, net safer, the, the, right. there is a micro and a macro issue here. Mm-hmm. There, When you talk about um, your example there in Florida, great. Mm-hmm. But what about in central Pakistan? Right. Of course. Where so, there's, but so Sorry, it, bear with me. Mm-hmm. If we have an increase in heat waves, most likely that will be global. We'll have a global increase in heat waves, not just in Florida. And so, yes, in Florida, a rich country, a rich state, the availability, mass availability of air conditioning mm-hmm. users. If you go to Bangladesh, Pakistan, poorer nations, I don't, th- they would have an increase in um, uh, heat waves too. We might not have the same increase in air conditioning units. So maybe there's a global net change, but on a localized level, um, you might have like an increased risk in different countries. Yeah, so we should talk about that. So so I agree. So my main point is about the methodology is we we need to look at the negatives and the positives. And I agree, you need to look at them in different places. You can't just say, oh, I'm in Florida, I'm so fine. I don't care what yeah. happens in Pakistan. But we could talk about, so, so if we were to take like climate livability, like the general issues are dangerous temperatures, and that includes cold and warm. We have to look at cold because cold actually kills a lot more than warmth. We have to look at drought wildfire, storms, floods, and then in sort of broadly sea level rises. Like those are the big crop, crop categories. Yeah, so you could put that under heat okay. and drought. So like in, in uh, chapter seven of the book, what I try to do is document what, at least first, let's understand what is the state of those, what's happened in the last hundred years of, of climate impact and fossil fuel use. And so unequivocally, what's happened is we've become radically safer in all of those realms. So we're far safer from dangerous temperatures, far safer from drought, far safer from wildfires, far safer from storms, far safer from floods. I'm not saying everyone agrees with this, but if you look at the data, the data is unequivocal. And so the overall statistic that I've popularized, and it's true from the International Disaster Database, is that climate-related disaster deaths. So quantifying these deaths, if you look 100 years ago when it was one degree Celsius cooler compared to now, it's, but we've used a lot of energy to power a lot of machines to make the climate more livable. What we've seen is climate-related disaster deaths have gone down 98%. So factor 50. What, what, um, what, what do you bucket in climate-related disaster deaths? So, well, it's, it's trying to capture, the, so the disaster database captures basically somebody, dro- like there's a, dr- there's a bad drought, there's a wildfire, like who's actually dying from these things. The one exception to this, which is an interesting issue, is heat and cold deaths are not all, most heat and cold related deaths are not bucketed in disaster deaths. Okay. So that you can, so, and it's important because there's a whole literature of heat and cold having more mild impacts that people think of as deadly over time. And so it's different from just, you had a heat wave and someone dropped dead, but it's like, okay, if you have generally too much heat in some area, how much of a contributing cause versus how much did cold suppress somebody's immune system? And what's interesting about those studies is they are universally saying, Cold-related deaths are currently a significant multiple, like five or more, of heat-related deaths. So those are the two data sets we have: climate-related disaster deaths, and then the heat versus cold. How so, and so, and what is causing the cold deaths? And what, where, where? So the significantly more cold deaths. Yeah. Uh, what is causing those deaths, and where are they happening? You mean how does cold cause death? Yeah. Well, I mean, is it in general? I mean, I'm not a doctor, but it suppresses, you know, it suppresses your immune system. In most places, people die more in the winter. Than they do in the summer. And where does that tend to happen? Do we know? So this is an interesting thing. 
because you would think, oh, it's just happening in Scandinavia or something like no, that. No, I wouldn't think that. Oh, I, well, I said most. My assumption would be cold snaps in places again like Pakistan, which you know we've seen. We saw the adverse weather there last year, where there was a snowstorm, and perhaps they're not used to having central heating. So that's a very astute kind of thing. But in in general, what happens is even warmer places can get cold to the point where cold is more dangerous. So, for example, in India, which you might think, oh, that's all heat, they have more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths. So even in many warm places, just warming on its own would be net beneficial for a significant amount of time in terms of temperature-related deaths. So why haven't we mastered uh, uh, heating in those places as we expect to uh, master um, uh, air conditioning? Because there's not enough freedom and not enough energy. I don't think that's a strong enough argument. I, I think I, that's I, the only argument. Well, I think in, in India has enough energy. Well, I said not enough freedom and not enough energy. So those are the two. In, India has been pretty economically successful this last decade. Well, they've gotten a lot safer. I mean, they're a lot better off. Their life expectancy has skyrocketed. So it's they're on an up, very amazing upward trajectory over the last 40 years. I mean, if... I would suggest many more pro-freedom reforms. What do you think is... Well, but, but the point I'm trying to make is is I don't think we can make the assumption if it gets, we have lots of heat waves, just because of economic flourishing, everybody's going to have access to uh, air conditioning as people who right now are dying from cold snaps don't have access to central heating. I don't think we can just make that assumption it will happen. Well, but but there's two things. So one is I'm saying that warming will generally be better for temperature-related deaths. So on its own, even... so. Climate impacts can be positive as well as negative. Uh -huh. So it's important. We have to recognize warming has significant benefits. And, and one aspect of it that's important is we often call it global warming, but it tends to take place in, in colder parts of the world. So it's mostly cold places becoming less cold, which came up in my debate with Dessler, and he mm -hmm. acknowledged this very much in passing. But this is a mainstream view. The UN says this. So it's mostly becoming, uh, you know, and so historically, it's not like the equator was just crazy, crazy hot but it's that the poles had no ice. Like the world had no ice for most of its history. So the it's more kind of polar warming or cold warming. So in general, so when you're looking at the net of this, what you're going to see is you're going to have fewer temperature-related deaths, at least for a while. And as more and more people use fossil fuels, you're going to have more mastery over climate in both directions. So we will become safer from temperature-related deaths what, and what, much safer from the others. What is the what are the numbers? What's the gap between heat related and cold related deaths? So as I said, these are all these are like the disaster deaths are a little bit more exact because you're trying to count specific people where you can say the yes, dominant yeah. cause of death was like this storm. The heat and cold related deaths are more kind of extrapolations. But as I said, they're like the range is something like five to fifteen times cold versus heat. So you'll have some okay. that say five, some that say fifteen. And as we solve that, that number would eventually flip. Well, but I'm saying global warming yeah. on its own, quote, solves a lot of that yeah. over time. But but I think the important thing is, so this is, we're only talking about climate livability, and that's part of global livability, which is overall Sorry, life. I think the other thing you have to have in there is pollution-related deaths. I, I, I think if you're, oh, for sure. if you're talking about climate deaths relating to climate change from mm -hmm. fossil fuels, you have to talk about pollution deaths. Well, as another, if you're talking about fossil fuels, for sure you do. Yeah, it's not. I wouldn't. It's not a climate issue. But well, no, but, but we're talking about climate related to the burning of fossil fuels that puts exactly. carbon in the atmosphere. Right. So. so as I was saying, you can think of it as it's really just the overall state of human flourishing, and you can think of that as like how livable is the world. For, for different people, but so that includes environmental quality. What I mean is if, if we reduced uh, uh, cold-related deaths, but mm -hmm. massively increased pollution-related deaths, mm -hmm. that wouldn't be great. 
What's, what's this, Danny? How many die from air pollution each year? So, yeah. So we that this would be a really interesting thing to talk about. I don't know if you want to talk about it in a minute because there's there's a lot more to say about climate, but. Yeah, let's um, talk about this. But it's, this is a so this is this is another. So my basic point is we have to look at the you know human flourishing as a whole, the livability of the world as a whole, and so climate impacts are part of that, but our ability to master those is part of it too, uh-huh. and pollution impacts are part of that, but our ability to master health is part of that as well, and also our ability to produce food and clothing and like all of these need to be integrated. And I'm saying that when you integrate them. It's unbelievably clear we need to be using more fossil fuels. That's my view. So we could talk about this in that yeah. context. Yeah. That's, do we know what were the numbers of deaths related to heat and cold? Do we have actual estimated numbers? Can you find that, Danny? I'll have a look. Yeah. So you need to look at the different studies. I think one is Gasparini, but I never want to say a number that might be wrong. So yeah. I'll just withhold. But we can get that later. So, but but what a lot of yours comes down to is. Uh, humans flourish with the the use of fossil f- fuels, and most of the negative externalities we can solve with more fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, interesting. I mean, they, they, it's really it's really the cost effective energy, and that fossil fuels are and will remain uniquely good at providing that for billions of people. If we had nuclear now, I'd advocate using that. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. 
there is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is BCB group.com forward slash Peter. So if it, if it was a net balance calculation, uh, we would want to understand the reduction in fossil fuel use, what, that, what number that would create. Right, but what I'm saying is there's yeah. already this life catastrophe of most of the world being poor, and that's what I don't yeah. think is factored in sufficiently, which is because we know that the number one cause of death is poverty which that includes a lot of these different things. Like when you're richer, you okay. can lower air pollution, you can do a lot of stuff. So, so this it, says 1.7 million deaths related to extreme heat or cold. I don't know if this is That's global. from the University of Washington. Uh, yeah, that's global. And so 356,000 due to heat, 1.3 million with regard to cold, which is, uh, that's on the 5X kind of yeah, version so of your the, point? That's about, the, that's the about 5X right. Version. But yeah. I mean, this is all trivial to, compared to poverty. But compared to like 7 million from air pollution, according to this. Right. So one one plausible thing to say about fossil fuels, which I would actually agree with, is that also, should, we should also say burning fossil fuels doesn't guarantee a reduction in poverty deaths. We have we have poverty in the UK. You have poverty here in the US. You have corruption across uh, the world. You have uh, uh, failed states. Burning fossil fuels doesn't guarantee human flourishing in failed states or corrupt regimes. We can't just say in every scenario, fossil f burning fossil fuels is the ut utopian solution. As I can't say that uh, everyone holding Bitcoin is the utopian solution to money. Yeah, well, if we talk about externalities, I can almost make the case that that's not true. Because in a sense, like there's so many external positives from using energy. But I would agree, I would think of it more as for everyone to have the opportunity to flourish, it's going to require a lot more energy and that needs to come from fossil fuels. That doesn't mean that any way, like if you just burned fossil fuels in someone's backyard for no reason, yeah, that would be that would can be I, Can I ask why does it have to come from fossil fuels? Sure. Um, I mean, this this is the economic question. So this is, I don't know if you want to talk about, I mean, we just have climate, Let's finish this pollution, point. and then, because that's, a, we need to address that question for sure. When when was, I mean, I know I should know this, when was the Industrial Revolution? You shouldn't, I'm asking you because you probably know. Well, but I mean, it, it depends on where you think, but you what take I, it from, what, like, what I mean is, what I'm trying to get at is the US, the UK, Japan, mm -hmm. a number of these countries have been very successful economically in, uh -huh. in development for decades. Some maybe I'll go a couple of centuries, but let's mm -hmm. just say decades. How recent has the UN been uh, objecting to projects in Africa? We're, we're talking, what, 10, 20 years? No, really starting, I mean, to development. So the anti-development yeah. sort of precedes, precedes the anti, 
uh, fossil fuel. So it really starts in the 80s. I mean, the 80s, it becomes massive. Okay, but but during the 50s, 60s, 70s, when right. Western nations were flourishing, Africa was... Right. Was Af- Africa flourishing then and we've curtailed it or was it still? No, so I'm saying there, there's this, it, it's, I, I really like that you're bringing this up because I do think it's not enough to say, oh, just fossil fuels. Yeah, exactly. That's my but point. That, that's my point in like chapter 10 of the book. I really try to emphasize you need the political freedom as well. But this, you, so you need both and you need to advocate both and it's wrong to only advocate one. So you need reform. But what we've seen is you have, you have a, even a significant increase in just the freedom to trade using property right, any kind of property rights and contracts. We see in China and India, it leads to a massive increase in wealth. And you're talking about 5X increases in fossil fuels, 10 plus year increases in life expectancy. So we have a formula. Even in Shanghai? Yeah. Really? So th- this goes to the well, air- how, how do you feel about the, like, just generally speaking about like the air pollution situation somewhere like Shanghai? Because it's clearly a shit show. Yeah, so the issue with China is, so just to say one quick point about air pollution that we can go into detail. It's undeniable that the overall effect of fossil fuels in China has been to dramatically increase the life expectancy. So when people talk about like people are dying from pollution, that is very misleading because they're living a lot longer because of the fossil fuels that allow them to have more food, clothing, shelter, and medical care, including that offsets some of the diseases. So I'm not saying yeah. China's ideal at all, yeah, but, but it's important that, so I consider- um, So the argument is- China has benefited from fossil fuels. Life expectancy has increased. In Shanghai, there's a massive increase in pollution, which will disproportionately affect you depending on your certain health mm-hmm. conditions. But sorry, but the net increase for well, Shanghai has improved. I, I'm not saying the sorry part because I'm not endorsing what China, the way China did it. But I think we have to agree. It's undeniable that in terms of life expectancy and other things, it's been a benefit and many people have chosen it. So, so what do you disagree facts. with how China, the, the well, so China is a dictatorship. Yeah. Right. So I mentioned that increasing the freedom, I said, even doing it in some modest, incomplete way has a lot of benefits. But if you contrast it to a free country, like in a free country, you have to respect people's property rights, including certain thresholds for air and water pollution. That doesn't exist in China, except they can dict- they can make it. I know everyone here knows the word fiat, which is great. Fiat, Bitcoin audiences know fiat. They nobody, know fiat. Nobody used to know fiat. So it's a great, it's a great uh, thing. So yeah, they can say by fiat, you know, we don't want it here for the Olympics. But in China, you have no right. You have no right to be freedom free from the endangerment of other people. Whereas in free countries, there's that basic understanding of a right. So if you look at the way China will build things, they'll build things, they'll totally kick people off their land. But they'll also have huge concentrations of pollution with very few controls, only optimizing for production and national glory. Whereas in the U.S., that's not usually the way it happened at all because we had property rights. So it wasn't that the whole country in the U.S. decided, let's optimize to produce as much as possible. It's you had freedom and people optimized, but they also had to respect others' rights. Now, over what, what's important, though, is at the beginning of industrialization, you can't have the same thresholds for pollution that you can when you're rich. So the, take the earliest industrialization, fire, right? When you invent fire, you can't say smoke is bad, smoke kills people, so we can't use smoke. Otherwise, no one can use fire and no one can keep themselves warm and no one can cook their food and everyone is going to die prematurely. So the government can't say smoke from fire is a violation of rights at a primitive stage. It can say like you're not allowed to go in your neighbor's hut and burn something and like asphy- asphyxiate them. So pollution standards evolve, and the point is they can get more and more stringent as you become wealthier and as you have alternatives. But 
This is all in the context of a rights-respecting place that's defining thresholds based on a concern for the rights of individuals. China's not doing that. So what you're seeing is the average individual is reaping the benefits of wealth, but they are not reaping the benefits of having their rights protected from endangerment by people creating wealth. And that is not fair. I do not at all. That's why I said I don't buy this. I don't say you get to kill this person because you have a higher life expectancy. I'm an individualist. I will say you can have a pollution threshold that allows more pollution in India than in the U.S. because that's overall better for individuals in India. But I would not say much of what China has done is totally unconscionable in terms of killing people. But it's still true that the average person has benefited mightily. I'm not endorsing the policies, but I acknowledge that reality. I'm saying with better policies, the reality would be much better and much fairer. Can you look up Shanghai life expectancy just out of interest? Mm -hmm. I'd be be interested to know. You're gonna uh, be you're gonna be impressed. Yeah, I mean, look, look, but but I'd just be interested to know. I mean, I just I wouldn't fucking live there. That shit. I know, but we. So here's the thing: like, we are really, really rich. Like eighty four in Shanghai. Eighty four, <laughs> and, and as, as, as is it changed? What's the? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been steady growth, but it's gone up for sure. I wonder if it, the life expectancy of someone would be with asthma. <laughs> no, but, but see, here's the thing. So, like, asthma's well, asthma's a fascinating subject. Okay, we don't need that rabbit hole. Um, that rabbit hole. Let's let's talk about the implications of climate change because one of the okay. one of the most interesting things, or the reason I, I wanted to talk to you, is you accept it's changing. You accept humans are doing it. And there are implications. How much have you dug into the implications? Because you talk about mastering mm-hmm. climate, which again, super interesting. So therefore, you're accepting that the the net the net um, temperature of the Earth is going to continue to grow, and mm-hmm. there's going to be implications for that. Well, that's true. But I also my so the context. One other piece of context. So everyone is poor. Most people are poor as a key piece of context. Another piece of context is nature is super dangerous. That's part of what's bad about poverty is you can't protect yourself from nature. So climate is naturally very dynamic and it's very naturally dangerous. It's also diverse, which poses different challenges. So the mastery has made us unnaturally safe from climate now. So when you're talking about getting rid of fossil fuels, you could make people more endangered from climate, even if climate stays the same, because we can't alleviate drought, we can't alleviate heat, we can't alleviate cold in the same way. But so that said, I absolutely think about these. And in fact, I have racked my brain, particularly in fossil future, because I really have thought about like, what would actually be a problem in terms of like, if we, like climate wise. We should, we should list them. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's it, flooding. I mean, Miami. So I'll give you my top three. Give me your top three. So my top three, but these these are hypothetical, and then yeah, we'll yeah. talk about them. So one would be a true acceleration of temperature, like an, an indefinite acceleration of temperature. Because right now the Earth is super cold, so it's not like it's been 25 degrees Fahrenheit, like 14 degrees Celsius warmer. It's super cold, like it could get a lot warmer and we'd be fine. But we'll talk in a second about and, sea and, level. And, and, and is a true acceleration of temperature a, a possibility? No. But, so, so, but then that's not implicated. But, but, but most change. people don't know that. But, but you're saying, okay, we can, we can think of it on the level of. I don't. I don't. I don't want to debunk things that. I want, what I want to know from your perspective, mm-hmm. it's undeniable that we've put more carbon in the yes. atmosphere. You've seen the measure. It's. It's. I think it's undeniable that's caused the net temperature of the Earth to rise. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I think so. So, the rising temperature 
has, right. has implications. Right. Well, posit- has a lot of positive ones and yeah, we negative can, ones. So we can okay. listen separately. But let's, let's deal with the negatives first. Okay. Well, so what are the negative I'll, implications? Because you talk so about sea level ma- rise. Sorry, bear with me. You talk about mastery. Therefore, you understand their implications. Right. What What are the ones that we should consider? I think the main one by far that's plausible is sea level rise. Sea level rise. Okay. But you should feel free to bring up others because I can explain why I don't think. I mean, the other would be. So the other hypothetical in my mind is like a multiplication, like two or more in the intensity of storms. Okay. Like frequency doesn't bother me, but intensity bothers me. Because if you can master one, you can master 10. You can master five, right? But if like hurricanes are twice as powerful, that's like well, a different if animal. If you live in a tornado zone and there's a, a increase in frequency, whilst you can do certain work on structures, properties get destroyed, people get killed. So if there was a massive increase in tornadoes, you may choose not to right, live in right. that place. But, so I'm, I'm talking about the level of concern that would make me consider reducing energy use. So to me, reducing energy use is a catastrophe. Okay. Intensity of storms? Yeah. Because you have to keep... Okay, no, we don't have on. the infrastructure to... I mean, you could come up with a multiple of intensity that we do not know how to deal with okay. right now. And they're the only two or there are any others? Well, the other one is the temperature one, but you asked, but then I had to admit that I don't think it's possible physically. Uh, what about crop failures? We, 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 we have direct evidence of impact on... Yeah, so no, that's not one that concerns me. I can explain why. Okay, well, I, I'll put it in there as one that... Can, let's have that as, well, crop, crop failures and... I expect wildfires are a big one for a lot of people. Yeah, well, let's talk with these. So let's talk about sea level rises. Okay. You tell me what what is the implication that you of rising temperature leads into sea level mm-hmm. rises? What is the impl- implication of that? Sure. And with all these, I just want to stress that, like, I regard fossil fuels as so crucial energy wise that restricting them to me is like a catastrophe, and, and eliminating them as people talk about like net zero, I consider that like the apocalypse. I consider that making the whole world poor, which to me is the apocalypse. So I'm thinking, when I'm thinking of these dangers, I'm thinking, is there anything truly catastrophic or apocalyptic? Which is not to say negative. There are many more negatives, but these are the big ones. So sea level rise, what the hypothetical is that, so Al Gore in his movie talks about sea level rises. So let's go back to net zero. What does net zero mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Define net zero for the audience. Sure, sure. So net zero means that there is, um, if you look at the emissions of greenhouse gases, mainly CO2, from burning fossil fuels, by a certain date, usually 2050, there will be no more entering the atmosphere as being pulled out of the atmosphere. So effectively, we won't be having any new greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we could burn some fossil fuels, but we know some's taken out of the atmosphere. If you, yeah, or you could try to suck it out manually or well, that, that, I mean, I've looked into that. That seems almost close to impossible with current technology. Yes. No, yeah, I agree. But I'm saying work, hypothetically, that's I saw the part of what of, can happen. And look, and, and think that you get economies of scale, you get better uh, investment, you get better technology, technological advances. But I saw some work that was done in carbon extraction and the amount of work to ex- extract a very small amount. Yes. It, was, it, it was something like a thousand cars. Something, whatever the number was, I was like, okay, that's not viable in the short term. But, and the ex- the extraction really is from plants. Yeah, but so what you're talking about, I agree with you. I talk about this in Chapter 7 of the book. But what that means is that net zero really means eliminating most fossil fuel use. The only way to get, if you can't easily extract the CO2, then you need to just get rid of the fossil fuels. Let's let's forget extraction. Mm -hmm. Um, Do we know, so 80% of the world's energy is from fossil fuels. Yeah. Do we know what level that number would be at to be a a balance with what is extracted from plants? Is it 50%, 20%? Do we know that? It's about 0%. It's about zero percent. Yeah. Do we know that though? Well, like, would, uh, uh, do you not know that? And you, or do you know that? 
the plants are not, I mean, you could, you could try to scheme to add, cause, cause remember you're starting, you'd have to add plants because there's a carbon cycle. And so there's already C, so the earth is already emitting way, like a lot of CO2 and it's pulling out a lot of CO2 all the time. And this is when you have all these fallacies about like all these other things emit a lot of CO2. That's true, but it's it's pretty balanced. That's why the level is flat until it's not flat historically long term, but short term, like over 100 years, is pretty flat because these the things putting it in the atmosphere and pulling it out of the atmosphere are pretty much equal, including like the oceans and plants and that kind of thing. So when we start emitting, there's no new thing pulling it out except what happens over time is more plants grow because of the more CO2 in the atmosphere. But those plants, so some people will say, basically the plants end up offsetting half of what you put in. Okay, so net zero is essentially no fossil fuels. Yes. Okay, but there could be an argument to transition and slow down fossil fuels so we could slow down the need for mastering the impacts on the environment. I mean, we'll come to it, but we've certainly transitioned parts of the grids to renewables, and those parts we've transitioned have reduced the need for fossil fuels. Um, so slowing down, like if we could get from 80% to 70% without much of an impact on the planet, I assume you would agree that's a good thing. Oh, so well, there's there's the issue of the percentage of energy use that fossil fuels constitute. But remember, we're talking about a vastly growing pie. Okay. So I do expect them to go down. And if particularly if nuclear gets liberated, I would want it to go down over time because it would actually be economically losing. We can talk about the renewable situation. I don't think that's usually an economic phenomenon. I think it's a government phenomenon. But yeah, so what I'm saying is okay. net, net zero. So getting rid of fossil fuels, just summarize, net, net zero, getting rid of fossil fuels in a world that needs vastly more energy, to me, is very destructive. Now, we haven't talked about the excellent question of what about alternatives. I'm just saying- we, Well, we're going to come to yeah, that. Yeah, no, I know. So let's talk about the climate. So no, I, I'm looking level for rises. catastrophe. So okay, let's, so sea, sea level, level rises. rises. Sure, we, sure. My example that I know of, just because when I was there, uh -huh. uh, I met Mayor Francis and I looked at the issue there. They have an issue of flooding, mm -hmm. a growing issue of flooding. And we looked it up, didn't we? They spent, what? what is it they expect to spend? Uh, let me have a look. It's in Miami, just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. Did I not say Miami? You just said Mayor Francis, but I, I know who he yeah. is. It was like 3.8 or 4.3 yeah, like billion. billion dollars. Over I mean, what period? I think it was by 2016. Okay, 2060. Okay, anyway. So, so yeah, the first thing is if sea levels rose fast enough, that would be a big problem for a substantially coastal civilization and also poorer people uh, near the coast. So we can talk about that number in a minute. But it's, it's really all about what is the rate of that. So in the movie An Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore talks about 20, you know, ice sheets melting and a 20-foot rise in sea levels, which in the movie is implied like that's going to happen soon. So if, Does he say that's going to happen? I forget the exact words, but it's definitely implied that it's imminent. It's not implied that it's over thousands of years, which is the actual science about it or the actual scientific projections about it. So it's it's we can Wait, look at Can we see that? In the movie? No, no. Well, like you're saying it's thousand years. Yeah, yeah it's doc I have the references in the book if, okay. you, if you want to see those. Um, and the most aggressive of like the most aggressive ones are still hundreds of years, like many hundreds of years. So what I'm saying is what I would be afraid of, and this goes to what I'd be afraid of, like, like a multi-feet per decade would be a very dramatic disruption. Now it's not an apocalypse. It's important, it's not an apocalypse but it is a very dramatic disruption and you would be really concerned and people would have to make a lot of changes in their plans. And if you could avert that cheaply, which I'm saying you couldn't, even if it was happening, 
Like you, you would really want to. But the thing is, but we also know at the same time that smaller changes in sea level are very easy to deal with, relatively speaking, because we already have 100 million people who live below high tide sea level. So human beings are very good at living even below sea level. The Netherlands was dealing with being below sea level even in pre-industrial times. It's nothing resembling like an apocalypse. It could be, a, so there's a difference between a disruption and a catastrophe and an apocalypse. And, and has anyone done the work to say, look, a one-foot one sea level rise would lead to, would impact this many millions of people globally on coastal, on coast? Well, but the thing is, there has been work, but the, what's interesting is when that work factors in people's adaptation. So there's this one study that I, I talk about in the book and I learned about from Bjorn Lomborg, and you hear you heard this claim about 187 million refugees under a certain scenario. But then if you look at the paper, they say that would only happen if it rose X amount and nobody adapted, but it said explicitly people will adapt, so you should never say this. And of course, the media said 187 million refugees and they promoted that idea. Yeah, I, I would ignore that. What, what I would want to know is, yeah, per foot rise, how many people does it affect and what is the cost to mitigate that and who's paying for it? So over time, it's... So to jump to my conclusion, like the, the extreme projections are on the order of two, maximum three feet by the year 2100. And that is a very small cost. Danny's going to look that up. Yeah, so that I showed that in the, the I have I can share the graph later if you want. If if you just look up, um, it's in the IPCC reports. If you, climate feedback, which is a kind of I view as catastrophist group, but they it's just a UN chart, and what they'll show is here's what we project by 2100, and then there's one version of it. There's like one super extreme version that has all these contingencies that I think might be four and a half feet, but the the main extreme one in a very extreme scenario is three feet, and so my view is that is not a catastrophe at all. And they said, even if we stop, even if we aggressively get rid of fossil fuels, it'll still rise 18 inches. I mean, it's a catastrophe for you if you you live on the coast and you can't afford to mitigate. But it, but it does, I don't know what it means you, because you have cities and you have groups of people who are incentivized to do, but it's, we, we again, we know that relatively, that the Netherlands has been good at this, even when they were fairly poor. Right, here we go. Here we go. Current and future emissions matter. About two feet of a sea rise along the US coast, US coastline is increasingly likely between 2020 and 2100 because of emissions today. Failing to curb emissions could cause an additional one and a half to five feet for a total of between three and a half to seven. Yeah, I don't know where seven feet comes from. It doesn't come from... Where's this from, Danny? Um, but is the is the issue of this not down to like coastal erosion as well, rather than just sea level rise, like the issue of flooding? Oh, well, this, this brings up Miami. So the issue with sea level is that most sea level issues... Has, uh, even with the warming we've had so far, are local issues, not global issues. So why is everyone focused on Miami? Because there are certain local issues in Miami that people focus on. Other places, sea levels are actually going down. So there are different... Lo so local, well, Where are sea levels going down? Um, I can look it up in the book if you want, but it's it's uh, there's charts. It's in moral case as well. You how though? If, if sea levels are net going up, how does it go down? Because you can have like building... So you have this with some of the land masses that people, like certain atolls, like in the Maldives and stuff you can have accretion of things that prop up. Uh, you can actually, the, these islands can get bigger because things can build up under. I mean, these things are, they're not like just fixed in height. They can go up and they can go down on their own. I'm not buying this one. Sorry, what? But this is just a... No, no, no. I just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, I, you might be right, but I'm just, you're telling me an island can go it, up. It doesn't make sense that like coral and other things could get together and that it could, the island could rise. No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Like, I, it just sounds... No, it sounds odd. 
No, but this is a lot of how these things form. Uh, no, I just I've never heard about this. It's okay. like new it, information. It, okay, it's it's important that yeah. So sea level changes are hugely a local phenomenon, up and down. So one thing that that will make the relative sea level sea level go up is if you have more land, if you have more buildings, right? Because you can build things and the land can go down, and it's a non-trivial uh, phenomenon. So you can also have pockets. This is really weird, but you can have pockets of water. Like, even though it's a global thing and it's sort of equal, it's not exactly like a perfect bathtub. You can have relatively higher and lower pockets. And what this means is that people but have if, to- But if, if, if the net sea level is going up, are you saying at the same time it's going down in other places? No, certain, a global sea level rise will mean that on average the sea level goes up that much, but certain places will still have- certain places will still have, um, the sea level will fall. But is it the sea level falling or is it the islands rising? Well, but the sea level is, is an experience. Yeah. So the global sea level is an overall volume I, of water. I need to see this one. <laughs> okay, well, hold on. If you just give me one second, Can I'm going to show up? you. I mean, I'm going to show it to you right here. I'm struggling to find it. I, need, I would need a source on that one. Yeah. Well, that one sounds odd. Luckily, we got sources for everything here. There's your sources and there's our sources. Well, these are, fortunately, all my sources are primary sources where I use mainstream you guys see it? Yep, pass it over. Right, I'm just looking at the book. So, what am I? Where am I looking here? So, look at look at that graph with multiple different sea levels. Yeah. So, so Alaska, it's going down. Louisiana, it's going up. New York, it's going up. Stockholm, it's going down. Helsinki, it's going down. I mean, the most extreme ones, Alaska. It's, this is generally true. Most climate-related phenomena are primarily local, which means. It's another reason why you need more energy. What's the, what's the time scale on this? Uh, just see what it is at the beginning. It's pretty. No, but I, pretty I've got short. I've got the centimeters on the the y-axis. I've got no time scale on the x-axis. Well, uh, I can see it, but it's 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 pretty recent okay. because these are they're using tidal okay. gauges. I so since 1950, sea levels off Alaska's coast have declined as much as 32 inches. Scientists know this because the sea level is measured every six minutes with equipment. That's so odd. Interesting. It's important. Do we know why? Why why is the sea level dropped in? I think uh, here you go, that first paragraph. As land rises. Okay. Yeah. Although ice melt from Alaska contributes to global sea level rise, sea levels near Alaska have been decreasing because the land beneath the state is rising. Despite this, the state could see rising water in the future as sea levels will eventually rise faster than the land. Okay, so this is this is this is to do with this is relativity. Okay, so there's a certain level of uh, the 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 rise in the land is outcompeting the right, rise in the water. There's local variation and global variation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So local variation so far is dramatically bigger than global variation. Yeah, but I think I think this would be an example of uh, what I would call would be cherry picking. No, 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 no. Because a- because I, I well I would want to know then on a global basis how much land is like it, you've got to look at. Like how much land is rising, how much is, is falling. Right. Because that's one example. But how many examples? That might be just like one rare example. Yeah. Oh, I just want to be clear. So to maybe even make your point stronger, there will be certain places where sea level is naturally rising, like Miami. It's already rising, and then it's compounded by the warming. So it'll rise. But so what they think, and I think Suarez has been wrong about this, he's been taught to think that it's all the global thing. Whereas it's significantly the local things, and then it's compounded by the global. But that means if you, if even if you dealt with the global, which I would agree is, I would argue is catastrophic to try to reduce right now, you still have the local. So it's wrong to attribute 
it's wrong to attribute a substantially local phenomenon exclusively to global. But absolutely, that's why I said that's I would be the global concerned. Picture. We've got to look at the global picture. Yeah, but is it global? Be... Is, it, is it for the majority of the people? Is it rising? Because if it of is, course. if it is, bringing out an argument like Alaska to me is cherry picking. But I didn't bring it. But I, oh, well, you did. It's in your book. Well, but I, <laughs> uh, but I think I brought it up in exactly what I did. I'm, I was explaining the phenomenon that when you're looking at the challenges that people face from sea level or have faced, they're mostly local challenges, which is why mastery ability is so important. But but what I'm saying is is this is where this is where it's important because somebody might turn around in a debate and turn and turn around and say, yeah, but sea level rises are dropping in some places. Look in Alaska, and that might convince somebody this is not an issue. But whereas, well, that would be a terrible argument. Yeah, but but that goes back to the start of our discussion. Mm-hmm. Is we've got to sometimes look at the net impact. If for the majority of coasts this mm-hmm. is an issue, then Alaska's irrelevant. It's just a one-off local issue. If the local issue exists for the majority of people, that's mm-hmm. important. Whereas here, I think I've been fair with you, but that I think is cherry big. So I, I don't want to be unfair to you, but I think what we, what's happened here is this is a factor you didn't know about yeah, 10 minutes ago. I didn't know but about But hold on it. a second. You've been talking to some of the leading climate scientists in the world, and you didn't know a basic fact about how sea level rise works. Well, no, no. What, what I didn't know is, well, no, look, if, if you think logically, we have mountains and we have, uh, uh, you know, we have moving continents. I understand land moves, mm-hmm. okay? Um, I What I hadn't considered, hadn't been part of my thoughts is, oh, yeah, but maybe uh, on some coast that the land is rising due to the land movement. But what that specifically also says is this is to do with the rate, the pace, the pace of change. Right, right. now, the pace of change in sea levels is such that Alaska... Uh, sea levels are falling. Mm-hmm. But like it says there, if we have this rapid increase in prices, uh, in temperatures and a rapid melting of the ice caps, that may get outpaced. Uh, absolutely. That's exactly what yeah. I said. But I was trying to get, remember, we're talking about, you asked me how much I think about our environment. And part of it is I think about how the diversity of impacts. So I want to be aware of places where there are local factors that are a bigger deal in one direction or the other. And as I said, certain places will be hurt by the local factors and even more by the global factors, and you have to factor that in. But it's all I'm saying is it's wrong if you are if you're having significant problems from local factors, which Miami is, it is wrong to fully attribute it to the global because you're gonna make decisions. And so decision. the local factor from Miami, you say you your point is that it's sinking. Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I won't go into the exact things of Miami. There's just clear Miami is has is having much greater than average sea level rise challenges, which means that it's more, by definition, yeah. that it's more local than global. So I think Suarez is misled. But what is that local issue? Is the local issue is that it's particularly flat, quite far in from the coast? Or is it, or is it sinking? Like what it can is be, it? It, But it can be a number of things. So I don't know the proportion, but so it can be, it can be building there sinks the land. It can be that there's like these giant kind of as I said, like the you can have these ocean masses that are slightly higher in some parts of the world over time. Yeah. So it can be that. So the, the thing to do in Miami is just to, to try to name those as exactly as possible and say, absolutely, here's the global sea level has increased by, let's say, the current rate is about a foot a century. So it hasn't quite increased a foot over the last century, but at its current rate, it'd be foot. And so to say, okay, here's what this is. Here's what we expect. And then this is what gets into... As I said, if it was increasing by a foot a decade, two feet a decade, that would be really, really disruptive. But what I'm okay. pointing out is that the extreme estimates, you're talking about three feet, two to three feet by the year 2100. What I'm saying is 
that's not alarmist. So this is why well, I'm two not to three feet up to seven feet, depending on your source, because a different source. Okay, but, but my source is is the UN IPCC, which is already extreme. Okay, but you already don't trust the UN. Well, we could talk about that. <laughs> but but but, but the, my point being is, look, there are all I'm saying is there are a range. I'm saying there are a range. Seven might be extreme, but the point is, well, well that came from the National Ocean Service, like part of the U.S. government. Okay, so there's different sources. Yeah, and it could be it could be they have some reason for saying the U.S. is going to be a little more than other places for some reason. Or they could have a reason for looking globally. What I'm saying is, there's a range of sources. Mm-hmm. You're, you're happy to take the the UN's point here, and you've also been critical of the UN. What I'm saying is, it doesn't matter which the source is. There is a range, and with that range, there are some local and global impacts. Yes, and then there's mitigation and there's cost. So yes. what we're considering is 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 the impact worth the cost of curtailing fossil fuels? And you would say the net impact of curtailing fossil fuels is far worse. And I understand your yes. argument. Yeah. Yes. And so I just want to make sure the UN, because you raise a good point, that I'm using the UN and I'm critical of the UN. So what I'm using, the UN, and it's particularly the intergovernmental panel on climate, I'm critical of the UN in general, but this in particular. And But what I'm doing is I want to think through for myself, like what are kind of the worst case scenario things? So when I look at the UN, I I believe there are systemic biases that the UN has, but it's also using a lot of good scientists. So when they say something is extreme, I'm pretty confident that what they say is extreme is the most extreme thing possible because I think they have a track record of being way too extreme. So I'm I'm trying to, instead of saying, what I'm not saying is, oh, there's going to be no significant sea level rise. I want to think through if what they're saying at the extreme end happens, how does that fact? How does that affect my argument? Okay, so the mitigation, global and local issues, uh, we know whether it's global, or local. We know Miami is going to be spending billions on that. Right. We also know the majority of uh, of the fossil fuels have been burnt, burnt in Western yes. successful nations. Yes, they're going to be nations that are going to be impacted by potential sea level rises. Who can't afford that? So do do you have any? You say we talk about mastery. Do mm-hmm. you, do you believe we have a almost uh, global social cost for helping nations who have been negatively affected, even though they've burnt less fossil fuels? Great question. So I don't believe they've been negatively affected. I think they've been dramatically positively affected. So I think. So, so sorry, sorry that if you do the research, mm-hmm. the impact on climate change. The yeah. largest impact will be on the poorest nations. The most impa- largest impact of anything adverse will be on poor people. Yeah. Yes. So do you think the richer nations have a duty to the poor nations to help them with the mastery? Well, I think I think we should encourage them to be free, but I want to dispute the so there's a narrative that we've caused them a problem whereas the, the problem we've caused them is by advocating anti-freedom, anti-development, anti-energy policies. But in terms of the global life expectancy and prosperity, we have radically increased the prosperity of the impoverished world through our use of fossil fuels. So our use of fossil fuels is a huge benefit to the impoverished world. They have access to far better better medical care, far more clean water. Some of the things you're talking about. Because of our inventions. Yeah, well, inventions, wealth, charity. I mean, but the health, the average health around the world, access to clean water, lack of starvation, these have all radically improved and they're all fossil fueled. I'm, I'm troubled by this okay, justification. Good. I don't the know reason, what you mean justification. But, but the, the reason I'm troubled by it is you're, you're saying our advanced, uh, our, our use of fossil fuels to advance 
tech, technological evolution mm-hmm. have been have benefited these nations, and therefore uh, they've had access to new inventions and technologies because of us. Therefore, the negative effect of say pro- global sea rises, we owe them no responsibility. Well, it's certainly current, by that. currently. No, well, but, no, but when it happens, like, when, but, but it's already you, happened. So. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that there will be places like Miami who mm-hmm. may have flooding issues, sea level rise issues. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is because you've benefited from our inventions, therefore you have to suffer the impact that we've had on, and we're not going to help you with that. I'm troubled by that. Well, but okay, I want to just, but it's not exactly what I'm saying. So, what I'm saying is we have to first acknowledge, because this is denied by almost everyone, that our use of fossil fuels thus far has been an enormous net benefit to the poor world. 99% of people commenting on this will not say what I just said. So I think it's an undeniable fact that most people are in denial about. That most people are in denial about. I, I always want, before I talk about the future, to evaluate the present where the facts are known. So here- Can, can I just throw something in there? You're saying they've undeniably benefited from our use of fossil fuels. Yes. But you've also said earlier- They've undeniably uh, been held back by our policies. Yeah, of course. So you you have to bring the two together. Sure. So let's take it. Take something like clean water. So we've had innovations in clean water, and that has helped fund certain and and facilitate certain types of clean water projects. And in some cases, that have pockets of freedom, like we help with you know water purification plants and that kind of thing. So this has all been made possible by fossil fuels. But at the same time. We have, through different incentives and policies, deprived poor people of the ability to do that themselves. So what I'm advocating as the solution is to liberate everyone so they can have an industrial civilization as well. That's the fundamental thing. It's not to say, let's use less fossil fuel so their sea level is a millimeter I'm I'm not asking for that. I've not made that point. Let's make the point that I've made is that you talk about 5 billion people living under $10 a day. If they had access to fossil fuels, they would have flourished. Okay, mm-hmm. so you're saying that. Well, if they but, had access to freedom and fossil fuels, yeah. yes. But you're also saying we've held them back through policy and bribing dictators. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you're also saying that um, you're also agreeing that uh, sea level rises may come, and they and adverse weather conditions on coast may come from the burning of fossil fuels. Yes. So let's try and let's put it all in the mix. Okay, where are they right now? They're in a position where they haven't flourished because we've held them back, because they've not had access to uh, fossil fuels. Yes, they've had these secondary benefits, just maybe some clean water, but they're also going to have these secondary negative effects of uh, of potential coastal flooding. If we'd have liberated them politically and economically, they would have been able to pay for these issues on the coast themselves, but we haven't, so therefore they can't. So it feels like to me we've had a net negative impact on them, if you weigh up the benefits of the technology and healthcare and the water we've given them, and then you weigh up the fact that we've completely held them back economically, it seems that we've net negative held them back. Therefore, we have a duty to them when we cause uh, coastal issues. Interesting. Okay. I've never heard that argument. Okay, but this that's is kind of an to, interesting argument. But this is where I come to it. This is where I think, yeah, excuse me for saying this, I think you cherry pick from both sides. And I or what, you, what you might have noticed, I, stri- I try and look at net things. And... If you, you you can you you can say they've had a net benefit from our inventions from fossil fuels, but then you can say that they've had a, they've been held back because we've restricted them from fossil fuels. It's like, well, what the fuck have we well, done to these people? Well, but I, I okay, I try to integrate these, and there are different people with different things. So I'll tell you what I think. Like I said, it has been evil of us 
to rest- to do anything to oppose freedom and fossil fuel use in these places. That's different from saying that the lack of freedom and the lack of fossil fuels is entirely the fault of the bad people in Western civilization who's done that. They they should be condemned for doing that. But it is not the fault of the free world fundamentally that the rest of the world is not free. Like freedom is an achievement. It's a new achievement. And it's the default is not to be free. So I think we have insufficiently spread freedom and certain actors have done certain things to oppose freedom. And that's evil. But the main way you should you should remediate that is to advocate freedom as avidly as possible. That's that's the solution. I can also believe, though, that our freedom for us has dramatically increased life expectancy around the world. This is just this is true. So the average person around the world is so much better off than they were. You mentioned I, I mentioned the average person. Well, I'm, no, talking no, no. About, I'm talking about the people on the coast. But no, no. But I'm. T- but let's talk about the poorest people in the world. I mentioned. So when I was born, two out of three. You know what is it? Four out of ten people are living on less than $2 a day. This is all adjusted for inflation. So now that's that's gone down by a factor of four. That's amazing. That's caused by freedom and fossil fuels, including our freedom. That needs to be factored in. That's all I'm saying. And, and continuing that is the number one priority. Small changes in sea level rise are a drop in the bucket. And so that's what I'm trying to talk about is the main thing is to make the poor world wealthy. It's not enough that they have benefited a lot from our productivity, but they need their own productivity, and that's what I'm advocating for. I completely agree. I completely agree they deserve their own productivity. But we've, we, they may have had a secondary benefit from our inventions. We've benefited far better. We have, of course, we have far more developed uh, economies. We have far better, uh, probably healthcare than most poorer nations. Of course. Yet the benefit we've had from that has come at a cost to them and their environment. And I, I feel like. We perhaps have an, a duty economically to help. If we have an opportunity to help them flourish e- uh, economically, promote freedom, promote fossil fuel use, invest in them, I also feel like we perhaps therefore also have a duty to support them when when they may have uh, uh, they need to master the coastal issues that will come. So I think it's a it's a plausible position, and I and I would say it's mostly a plausible position if there is a part of the world that is very disproportionately affected. So this is, this yeah. it doesn't turn out to be true, but if you take like the Maldives or let's say someplace that's poor, like there was this idea that the Maldives are about to drown, but it's not happening at all because there are these factors building up the landmass. But let's say you have certain- Can you look that up? Yeah, I mean, they're building new airports and it's like, I want to go on my honeymoon there. It's like, it's, yeah. it's like a flourishing place or it's, it's increasingly flourishing. But like you could imagine- with a certain hypothetical distribution of change, that one area would be really adversely affected. Or you can even imagine within a country. And then you'd say, you know what? Like, we want to give some relief to these people. And that's a plausible thing as long as you acknowledge the energy we are producing is benefiting everyone hugely. And that's what I don't want to leave out of the picture. The energy we're using is benefiting the whole world, and they need to use a lot more on their own. That's what I want to keep stressing and not not keep fixating on sea levels and small changes in sea level as the thing we're fixating on. That's well, see, that's but see, see, like in your world, they've talked about the prediction in your world. You want to burn more fossil fuels, so there's oh, a yeah. chance that you that, that in your world it actually does accelerate things. I don't even you mean well, it'll lead to more sea level rise than would yeah. occur than in the. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I want that. So you want more sea level rise? Well, I want that overall picture for sure. <laughs> so let's talk. What about issues of flooding now? I don't have any data on this, but it feels like to me over the last decade, we've seen 
an increase of in catastrophic floods from storms. You talked about that an increase in it. You worried about an increase in intensity of storms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we had what happened in New Orleans. What what happened in Houston? What happened in New, mm-hmm. New York? I'm only anecdotally able to answer this. It feels like over the last decade, and it's not just there. I mean, it's in the UK. It's in Bangladesh. We've seen an increase in these catastrophic floods. Do we know if there has been? Yeah. So it's in chapter seven of the book. There's so there's not any documented increase, and there's certainly nothing in death. I mean, death is a decrease, and damage is pretty flat. But I want to keep in mind, like, even if there was a significant increase, that would be trivial compared to the benefits of billions of people having the opportunity. So what's interesting is these areas, it would be okay if these areas were getting worse, but they're actually getting better because the, the climate benefits of fossil fuels outweigh just the climate just the climate benefits outweigh the climate negative side effects, let alone the overall benefits. That's why I think it's so obvious we need to be using more because even in the climate areas, we're much better off over time and we can expect to keep mastering climate going forward. What are the things we, by the way, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, it's great. What what are the things we have to master? Actually, I had one more thing. Crop failures. Okay, so I've done some initial research into that. Uh-huh. Uh, the the typical example people bring up, the one I've read most about, is uh, coffee production in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. There is a there is there has been an increase, well, a decrease in the uh, well, an increase in failed crops in Ethiopia. Uh-huh. The mitigation for that is basically they have to move up just a higher climate. Uh-huh. I'm sure you know about this. So that that there is uh, an inferred uh, position here that that a change in temperature will will lead to a change in uh, uh, in agriculture. Okay, just sorry, one technical point because people might attack me for this if yeah. I don't say it is that in the climate literature they use the term mitigation. I like the way you're using it, but they use it differently. So mitigation they mean reducing fossil fuel use no, and I, adaptation is what I you're mean calling adaptation. Okay, I just want to yeah. make make clear so, if, if I use those. Yeah. Terms. So what I read in um, Ethiopia is five uh, percent of the people are employed in the coffee industry. Uh-huh. There has been an increase in failures, and the way they adapt it, adapt is to move their production mm-hmm. to uh, to higher up the mountains. Right. So, so generally, that's just one example. Right. So, generally, with if you think about like crops and crop failures, I mean, I think what we see in general around the world, including in the poor world, is crop production increasing over time for a variety of reasons. In terms of, so why didn't I include crop failure in my concerns? One is we're incredibly good at doing it using all kinds of technologies in different places. But the other thing is that the two dynamics, the two of the main dynamics of rising CO2, warming and greening, are both generally very friendly to crops. Because particularly when I mentioned warming occurs more in colder places in the world. So what's going to happen is in general, more of the earth is going to be have the right temperature. They're going to have the right temperature to grow things. And then also there's going to be more CO2, so it's easier to grow things. But that's definitely a macro issue. Oh, so, so the areas that green... Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you accept that some place is going to have lower crop production because of rising temperatures, some are going to have an increase, you're moving crop production to different areas of the world. But what, what I was saying is, so, so it's true that some places will have, um, depending on the warming, will have lower production because of heat. But I'm saying even more places could have higher production because of heat because colder places will be open to crops that weren't open before. So I'm saying in general, there's going to be more of the world will be open to crops, even leaving aside the, the greening. So let's go back to my point earlier. So Ethiopia? Yeah. So so they have they have a redu- already a poor nation, have a reduced right. uh, production of coffee. Therefore, that, that lowers their GDP. 
parts of Canada maybe open up to crop production, have an increase right. in their GDP. How do we balance that? So, so the way I, th- I think of it is, I mean, just to bring in the big picture of Ethiopia, the main thing is freedom, fossil fuels, industrialization. Like as long as they're super poor, they're going to be vulnerable to all kinds of disruptions. With this disruption, there's always a question, just like the sea levels, of how much is local, how much is global. You've talked about cherry picking. But, but how much? How much would... Uh, an increase in fossil fuels in Ethiopia changed coffee production to the coffee to producers. I mean, it could radically change it, right? I mean, they could have a modern industry that could be much more productive. No, but specifically... Or they could produce other things. I mean, Ethiopia will be much better off in terms of crop production and other things if they industrialize. I mean, that's just... I mean, it'd be radically better. Like, Ethiopia is not inhospitable to life. Ethiopia could be amazing if it had the right policies and energies. That's what I keep coming back to is... One way is every area of the earth is incredibly habitable. Almost every area is incredibly habitable if you have freedom and if you have energy. So in the US, we have a microcosm of the globe, right? We've got polar Alaska, swampy Florida, whatever Texas is, you know, where I live in California, which is kind of like nice desert ocean type thing. Like we can flourish in any climate, including with production of different valuable things with freedom and with energy. And without that, almost every climate is inhospitable. And I think what a lot of the catastrophists do is they take a place that's having a climate problem. They Sometimes they attribute a, a local problem to a global problem, but then they ignore the need for mastery. So I'm saying if you have the ability to master, you can deal with anything. If have you I done don't, this? What? Have I done this? I don't know if you've done I'm not focusing on you because you're, you know, we're not but, but this is this, Yeah, but this is where the discussion is. I'm, let's, let's keep to what I'm discussing. Well, I, I think that it hasn't come up enough. So I'm trying to emphasize it more in the minds of the listeners. Okay, but but uh, I'm not a climate alarmist. I'm I'm here No, but I think you've been influenced by them and you've expressed and admiration been, for a lot of them. And I've been influenced by you and I know, I'm happy. I'm trying I'm to is, even skew it a little bit more. But okay, cuz the one thing I don't buy here, the one thing I'm struggling with this Alex is this idea that Ethiopia is being completely held back from industrializing. They already have uh, an economy, they already have the ability to produce goods. Mhm. I don't. What are they being held back from producing right now? Well, so held back is is can be equivocal because it's are we holding them back, or is just lack of freedom holding? So I said freedom is an achievement. So let's say you have various like dic, you have bad government, various bad dictatorial forces. There's a. I mean that used to be almost the whole world. So there's a question of how do you overcome that and. What happened originally is people overcame that internally. They come up with better systems of government. But but right but, now, but, but countries with dictatorial governments have industrialized. Uh, well, as you've mentioned with China, it often has a lot of adverse things. So you need. Even, yeah, but, but that's a different point. But even but even if you have but hold on even if you have, so you can have a dictatorial government that's more friendly toward industry and that has pockets of freedom in the economic realm, which a place like China does. You can have other places that don't have that. But I imagine there are other factors that come into play here. I, I, so what do you think are the other factors? Well, I, I don't know. Local factors, uh, educational level, the, the availability of resource. Uh, I, could, I can imagine there's a whole bunch of factors that are, are the reason something somewhere like Ethiopia hasn't industrialized. Not, and I, I would be reticent to just attribute it to the fact that they don't have enough fossil fuels. Well, no, no, no. As I said, it's, it's, I keep mentioning freedom and fossil fuels because it's, it's the government. If you have the wrong kind of government, and that also relates to culture at a given time, if you do, if you have that, then you can't use fossil fuels. You can't do anything well. Okay. Imagine, imagine with all the will in the world, we can't bring that freedom to these countries because it's difficult. 
you can encourage freedom, you can try and bring freedom, but sometimes you just can't bring it to a country. Imagine we cannot bring freedom to Ethiopia. There are people there who right now, their coffee production is at risk, and therefore it's at risk to their GDP. Do we owe a duty to them by moving the uh, the 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 availability of uh, of the right type of land for crop production to other parts of the world. So, so what, what are you proposing that we do? I, what I'm saying is is that you can talk about greening in one area and that will increase crop production there. And people in these the, the people who are working in Ethiopia right now are going to have a reduced crop production. Mm-hmm. Do we owe them a duty? So, well, how would you fulfill this duty? Uh, Subsidies, like if they have to move their crop production up the mountain, there's a cost to that. Who's going to pay for that cost? I think all, all the effort. So I, I don't agree that nothing that, that we can't change. So all the effort should be spent. So all the effort that's spent saying like poor Ethiopia, you're a victim of us. You deserve like all that effort should be spent on. You need radical policy reform. We'll help. Like we'll do whatever we can to facilitate that. But viewing it as Ethi- like, you know, really good friend of mine, immigrant from Ethiopia and like. His life, like he views life there as like, this was a catastrophe. Like I'm, oh, in the, I'm in the US, like I get to be, you know, the CEO of a company now and I can have these amazing opportunities. Like I view life there. So th- there's, when I talk about the cherry picking that exists in general and that that's passed on to most people, we look at Ethiopia and we're taught to think mostly about these variations in climate. And what I'm trying to say is we should look at the abject poverty. That's the core. And climate is just one tiny sliver of the problems of poverty. Okay, I, I see your point. I'm conscious we're running out of time. We could have probably gone on for three, four hours. Really, probably, really enjoyed probably. this. Um, I'm just trying to think what have I not covered that I picked We didn't up. cover the relative economics of energy at all. I don't know if people are going to be. G- give upset me the about TLDR. That. So the, the TLDR is, you know, my view is that fossil fuels will remain a uniquely cost effective source of energy for many decades to come. So by that, I mean low cost reliable, versatile, which means every type of machine, and then on a scale of billions of people in thousands of places. And the basic facts that lead to that are one is the world already needs far more energy. Fossil fuels produce 80% of it, particularly specializing in heavy-duty transportation and industrial process heat, which are very hard to replace. And the only even plausible replacement to those on any future timeline that we've seen is nuclear, which has been criminalized. So we're two generations at least away from making that a mass thing. And solar and wind are nowhere near. There are arguments about how much of a supplement they can be, but I think there's no compelling argument that they can rapidly replace fossil fuels. So that's my okay. argument. I'm not. By the way, I'm not against them, although I am against policies that favor them. I can imagine certain scenarios where particularly solar could integrate well with natural gas and provide cheaper electricity. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to have gotten to the whole renewables thing because I think here in Texas it's, it's interesting because it's used as an example, but it also has that as a great source of wind and a great source of sun and and, and has the the economic position to to try things. But I think that's we we basically. Yeah, no, I would love to talk about Texas, but I agree. Yeah. We, you know what? We, we'll just do another one. Yeah, if, and, if and I think I think the issues you've focused on are more important. So yeah. I'm glad we've talked about those. Anything before I close, Danny? Anything I've not asked that you wanted to ask? The the one thing that I kept coming to is, do you think it'll sort of lead to mass climate migration? 
Um, like if, if it gets too hot places, go inside and turn the aircon on isn't enough of an argument maybe. And the same with like the people maybe in Ethiopia who can't farm on their land anymore. Like do you think, and, and if it does turn to that, like do you think countries would open their borders? Because it, it doesn't seem like they will. Yeah, so the, the, like if you look at the range of, I think it depends on where in the range of temperature projections things happen. So if you look at like the historical range, the way they do it is is every time you double the amount of CO2, how much global warming do you get? And the typical range- It reduces, right? What's that? It reduces, the, like the, the, the impact, there's like an S-curve. It's a logarithmic yeah. effect, you know, diminishing effect. So you get diminishing returns. But so the, there's sort of the historical range that the IPCC has had is doubling. So from 280 to 560, we're at about like 420 now. So let's say we got to 560, like that would mean at the bottom end, it's 1.5 degrees above the industrial revolution. And we're already at one. And the upper end is 4.5. Now, in the recent report, they've gone from two to five, which I'm very suspicious of. But in any case, whatever. So let's just say 1.5 to five to give the whole range. Like that is going to have, you know, where in the range it falls will affect everything, particularly the temperature. So at the upper end of that, it is plausible you would have migration. Uh, I mean, you'll, have, but the thing is, you have a lot of migration, like moving is a normal thing. And one of the nice things about climate changes are they're slow and you learn more about them over time. Another thing is, which we haven't talked about, is there's plausibility that we could actually cool the climate and that we'll develop that ability, uh, which is a whole, which is a discussion. But yeah. but it's it's important, I think, that you know in the next 20 years, we'll learn more about these things and that can inform adaptation decisions. So I would think of it as, you can think of it as, oh, it's migration, it's bad, but there's also it's really cool that human beings have the ability to move because not only can we master climate locally, but we can master our location over time. And if it did, so I have my doubts that it would be at the extreme end, but if it did, then yeah, you would have to talk about all of these things, but you would talk about them in a constructive way. And and we have a very rich history of like moving a lot as a species, different places, and I hope if the world follows what I'm talking about more in terms of freedom and fossil fuels, more of the world will be a good place to live. I hope it's not, you know, I hope it's not just the U.S. that's the land of opportunity or certain aspects of Europe. I hope more and more of the world is a land of opportunity. And more places are like Singapore, you know, which you, would, you wouldn't want to be in that climate, except it's just so amazing in terms of what they've done in terms of their government, what they've done in terms of, uh, of energy. But I, I do want to stress, like, I am not saying at all there won't be changes, even there won't be some significant changes. There won't be what Al Gore says. And you have to factor this in over time, and you have to factor in what the availability of alternatives is. And I would just add, if you care about alternatives, you should really join me in this quest to decriminalize nuclear energy. Because I do believe that if we had not criminalized nuclear, we would have way more options in terms of no carbon or low carbon energy right now. Uh, we definitely have to do a follow-up. There's a whole bunch of stuff we've not discussed uh, that I'd like to get into. Uh, um, but I've really enjoyed this. I've, I've definitely yeah, learned a lot I, from I, it. I'm really grateful to you, and I, and I really uh, enjoyed the challenges and enjoyed uh, the agreement. So, My, my only co- closing question, how, how long have you been on this subject? 15 years. 15 years. Over that period, uh, have there been things that you've got wrong that you've had to shift your position on? Oh, yeah. I mean, itemize all my sins. No, I, I don't need them all. But, but I'm, what I'm wondering is, is your position evolving and can it evolve more to, you know, less concerned to more, like, or, or yeah, how so rigid? In, interestingly, well, as I said, so these are, like, my framework is looking at the full context, benefits and side effects of the different alternatives. Yeah. So as I said, the, the, 
the energy economics of the alternatives can change over time, as can I could be I can be wrong about something. And then the the climate impacts, including negative climate impacts, our knowledge of those can change. So the sort of the absolute state of knowledge can change. And then I, you know, I could be thinking about one of them wrong. So, like, yeah. for example, I've um I had a really weird evolution because I feel like after I wrote Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, I was off the issue for a little bit. And I became more fearful of climate stuff and more optimistic about the alternatives. I wasn't really plugged in, but I was like, like even I was just seeing so much stuff. And then I looked into it, I was like, no. And now I'm even, I wish this weren't true, but like now I'm even more extreme than I was with the moral case for fossil fuels. The thing I would also say is that in the last four or five years, I have an amazing researcher, Stefan Henna, and he, we've both learned over time. So like there are certain things in, the moral case for fossil fuels, like about climate, that are not exactly accurate that I think I've corrected in this. And so one thing, I'll just one difference that I think is really important is the moral case for fossil fuels expresses too much confidence that the higher end warming scenarios are exaggerated. And so now I would say I have three reasons to think that they're exaggerated, but I am open to them as a possibility. And so that's a way in which I think my thinking has become evolved versus saying, yeah, they're exaggerating. And we, you know, we're not talking about models, but like I think sometimes the criticism of the models go overboard and saying, oh, the models are bad. But that's a subject probably for another day. I mean, you know, to summarize anyway, I, I, I think we're going to face this climate change anyway, because I think governments will be inefficient, at, even if they wanted to, even mm-hmm. if they felt they could transition to more renewables. I, I think there will be an inefficiency in it, and I think other nations will continue to burn them. I think we will have to adapt. I think that is going to come. Um, the areas, I guess, that uh, I think are still a bit gray for me are uh, what happens in a scenario where we hit $300 a barrel of oil. That that changes some of the economics of this and consideration for this. Um, I'm most interested in uh, how uh, poorer nations are helped in certain scenarios. And I... I and the one area I, I struggle with is this idea that we can suddenly just industrialize nations just by promoting freedom and offering finance. I still don't think there's a chance we can't have these nations advance as quickly as possible, but I don't know. But I mean, for me, this is a, an evolving understanding of what's happening with regards to climate, but also an evolving understanding of the things that, that you've brought to the table. And uh, we could discuss for a long time. Anyone listening, I'm not an expert. Alex is by his um, admission, <laughs> uh, I would uh, treat everything skeptically. Don't be angry at anyone for having a different opinion on you, and, and please go and do your own research. Uh, you should uh, tell people about your book. Yeah, so the book is, is Fossil Future, and it you know it covers a lot of these things in depth, and it uses like all primary sources or mainstream sources. So I think, you know, I would say the thing I'm doing distinctively is I, I think I have a consistent pro-human full context method for thinking about this. Uh, so I think people should look into that and then see whether I accurately represent the facts. And I would just say also, um, if you want to reach me, easy to reach me on Twitter at Alex Epstein. And one other resource I have is called energytalkingpoints.com, which is a free website. And you can actually search any term and you can get my current well-referenced talking points on that issue. So if you're ever wondering, or you don't want to buy the book, you want to know what does Alex think about like rising temperatures, just put that in energytalkingpoints.com, and you'll at least get my perspective. Fantastic. Well, I think we should do this again. Um, we will, Danny will stay in touch. Uh, I would love to have you sat with Catherine Hayo and 
have a lovely discussion uh, between I, the two I of you. Have, I have agreed to have those discussions many times, I, but it takes two to tango. Yeah, I think that's unlikely. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to be doing my own research. I expect we'll do when we do a follow up. I will bring other things. Um, but I appreciate you coming in. Uh, interesting chat, and um, yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Awesome, thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.